Support for Boston Public Radio comes from the law firm of Davis Malm. Whether you're a buyer, seller, investor, or lender, their business attorneys understand that each deal has unique needs and requirements. Building client relationships one transaction at a time. Learn more at davismalm.com. We start today's BPR with our politics panelist, Scott Pruitt, on the way out in D.C. His body cameras are on the way in in Boston. Then Charlie Senate calls in from England and talks about Trump wanting to pull out of Syria just as chemical weapons are unleashed there. Then at noon, it's your turn. Ayanna Presley is challenging incumbent Mike Capuano for Congress, though they have virtually the same positions on almost all issues. We'll ask you if in 2018, women get your vote, no matter the opposition. Our TV man Bob Thompson on Kathy Griffin's return to TV and HBO's Paterno, with Al Pacino starring as a legendary but flawed football coach. We'll open the lines and ask you, is four hours a day checking email a tad over the top? Nope. Just right? How about a law keeping your boss from emailing you after hours? And then Boston Public Radio's very own poet laureate, Richard Blanco, joins us for a poetry teaching in Studio 3. All that coming up on Boston Public Radio. I am Marjorie Egan. You are listening to Boston Public Radio, 89.7 WGBH. Good morning, Jim. It's going to be 60 on Thursday. That's right. <laughs> Jim has been championing uh, spring now. All through the snowstorms, 30-degree temperatures. Yeah, I had my hood on this morning in my 29 gloves. 29 degrees in the middle of the night <laughs> last night. Here with us in Studio 3 to take on the latest politics headlines. We should have had a meteorologist on with us today. From Beacon Hill to the Beltway <laughs> are depressing. Charlie Chippio and Shannon exactly. O'Brien. Charlie is principal of Chippio Strategies, senior fellow of both the Governing and Pioneer Institute and alum of the Romney era. Shannon O'Brien is former state treasurer and former Democratic nominee for governor. Hello to both of you. Hello. So we're going to start locally because you, you, we've got Mr. Transportation over here, Charlie Chippio, who's obsessive about all I things. I he knows nothing about transportation. <laughs> <laughs> Having to do with transportation. By we, the way, for those who don't understand that reference, we had Michael Dukakis, <laughs> who's one of our favorites senior a couple of years ago, and I made the huge mistake of quoting a column Charlie Chippio had written. Uh-oh. And Governor Dukakis yeah. said literally, as Shannon just says, he knows nothing about yeah. transportation. Well, I think you know so we'll, a lot about we'll, transportation. Sorry so we'll, for the nonsense. It's, it's okay. <laughs> it's okay. So uh, let's talk with a couple of stories involving um, the MBTA and the commuter rail. One about a uh, guy that was had a terrible record for recklessness, and yet he's driving a train. But the one I want to talk about is the absenteeism among uh, bus drivers, uh, pretty significant people, uh, yeah. you, you know, mi- all these bus uh, rides being late, nobody's showing up to Canceled. work. Yeah. So I guess the problem is this is one of the things I think is so difficult for the MBTA to get money from taxpayers because if it's not the cash room scandal, if it's not that the mechanics are you know, costing us a fortune as opposed to if they privatize mechanics, now you have the bus drivers not showing up. Isn't this one of the things that people can cite, Republicans can cite, when Charlie Baker says we need more money for the T? Yeah, no, it's absolutely true. And, 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 you know, this is the argument I keep having with a lot of transit advocates when they just keep saying more money, more money, more money. And I I just keep trying to say, well, maybe the place needs more money, but people are not going to buy more money when they – they don't want to put more of their money in until they have a sense that the place is working. And – this is this is really unfortunate because they have um, th- their their level of, of bus rides, bus trips that are being canceled is back up to the rate it was during the fifteen blizzard. Right after having gone way down, and um, it's really problematic. And they're in a difficult position because on one hand, uh, they need more full time 
uh, bus drivers, but they don't want to hire more full-time bus drivers because the pension is so insane. Once they hire more people and they're on the hook for this pension where the average person puts $47,000 in in their career and gets $1.6 million out, you know, I, you know, they just don't want to do it. So what do you do? I mean, we got to fix this stuff. So, uh, Shannon, further proof that Charlie Shapiro knows nothing about <laughs> transportation. <laughs> you know, the problem I have, and I, I, I think intellectually, Charlie and Marjorie are both right, the reality is we're never going to ferret out. By the time we ferret out all the waste and inefficiency in the transportation system, we're not going to have a third world transportation right. system. We're going to have a fourth world transportation system. And I would argue if the conventional wisdom is the only way you fix it is by reform and raising money, that if you're a governor and have a 74% approval rating, you can probably convince the public that I can do both things at the same time. Would you not agree? I, I agree. And, and, and this is, you know, I, as I've said a number of times on this show, you know, I think that Charlie Baker, you know, has, uh, has got a great deal of so-called, you know, goodwill in the bank. And this is the area, transportation, the T, the highways. This is where he needs to be spending that capital. It and does, business guys will support and, him, and you would business, think, too. And a lot of people will support him. I mean, everybody who comes up the expressway swearing, you know, because, you know, once again, a 20-minute ride. I mean, a 20-minute ride takes you an hour to get in. It wastes time. It wastes resources. So, you know, I think that the – I do think that the, you know, that the union, you know, needs to work hard – uh, to, to engage in negotiations because there are some sort of smaller, you know, efforts, whether it's the um, – I, I think they probably should agree to the fact that a one-hour window to say you're not coming in is not sufficient mm -hmm. because then, you know, you don't have enough time to fill that in. Sure. I do think that there can be both sticks and carrots, carrots saying that, you know, for good behavior, if you aren't absent, that, you know, maybe there's some, you know, there's some sweetener, you know, at the end of the year. There, there can be both. But the bottom line is this has got to come from the very top. This requires so much uh, uh, it, it, the top of the union and the top of the administration. Well, Let me ask you and, my, my pension question because you're a Democrat. Here we go. Um, <laughs> I, 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 what really drives me nuts, especially when so few people that have – That you don't have a pension. That's right. I have a small pension, but, but I'm lucky, luckier right. than most people right. because I have a good job. Um, Many people have no pensions. Exactly. They're going to be so. How can we justify anymore when people happily are living till eighty, eighty-five, and ninety? People be able to collect their pensions from the Commonwealth before sixty-five. It's causing. Can you can I have a point and say fifty-five? Excuse me, Charlie. While Marjorie's talking, about, I'm going to go get a pizza. Does anybody want no, pepperoni? No, <laughs> well, really, I'm serious. I mean, okay, if you want to retire at fifty, retire at fifty. You can't start collecting till you're sixty-five because it's the schools don't have enough money, the roads don't have enough money. And one of our big problems. Why don't you make is this? the Governor Baker when he's in here well, next I month. Well, I will, but, she, but, but she, I think I've asked him before this, and I think I think he's – well, I shouldn't say he he's agrees. He's probably supportive of that, but, but this is – down in Rhode Island, you know, Gina Raimondo, you know, and, and, and I think in Colorado, um, other states that have, you know, taken on this sort of third rail issue. Uh, it's been very politically unpopular, you know, with, with many, um, you know, segments of, of – She's know, still suffering. Of, she did that as treasurer. Yeah. And yeah, she was elected she elected governor. Yeah. Which I was true, and she's running for re-election, but, but it's still but in But I the... do think that the sort of earlier retirement levels that, that, a, that a subset of public or, public or quasi-public employees, I don't think that that's sustainable going into the future. Right. It's just not. And – I mean, I, I'm a public employee. I will get a pension, you know, and, and I can't, 
you know, take that until, you know, whatever. And then um, each year, the earlier that you take it, you get less of a pension. To me, weaving in something like that for future employees, we did it with state employees. We increased the contribution. I mean, this is years ago when I was in the legislature, increased the contribution. So regular state employees are bearing most of the cost of, of, of their pension. You know, I think you're going to have to take a yeah, look I'm at that. Yeah, I'm not sure if well. that's true anymore, though, with people living that long. You're talking the difference between, you know, the T and regular state, the, the, the percent of money that is taken out of the wages of state employees is significant that That's goes right. into to and, pay and, for their pensions. And this is, and, well, first of all, Shannon, you're 37, so you got plenty <laughs> of time to get all that. <laughs> yeah. But I mean, as much I have as, a chance to get on someplace else. That's right. Is that what you're That's saying? It. Yeah. I mean, as much as the likes of Jim want to say, oh, well, there will always be. Well, you know, there always will be, but we're not asking the their. Likes of Jim. We're, 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 not, we're not asking <laughs> there for there not be waste, fraud, and abuse anymore. We're just asking for the level of waste, fraud, and abuse at the T to be the same as the level of waste, fraud, and abuse at the rest of the state. That's all we're asking. I think what Jim is saying, and again, go get that pizza, Um, but I think what Jim is saying is you can't wait for there to be lily-white perfection. Oh, I agree. You kind of have to do it. You're a long way, though, Because those people who keep saying you have to get rid of waste, fraud, and abuse before I'm going to spend a penny more really just don't want to spend a penny more. Can we, just one more quick thing on transfer. This thing that Andrea Estes wrote about this guy where where the contention was, we didn't know he had a bad driving record. We didn't know this. And she, of course, does the research and finds out that, as the headline says, rail officials knew Judge's son had poor driving record, yet made him an engineer. Beyond the fact that it's wildly dangerous, you know, plus irresponsible. The one thing she didn't return to, which I assume will be a follow-up, she mentions that this guy was the son of the chief municipal judge in uh, Boston, uh, I will ask you an irresponsible question, and, looking for an irresponsible answer. Is there any doubt in anybody's mind that the reason he got away with this is because his father just, was the chief municipal judge in Boston? Just so listeners know, he, these were extreme negligence charges that uh, uh, when he was working for the commuter rail, including uh, running a stop signal and failing to stop before entering a faulty railroad crossing, and not to mention... Like dangerous. Yeah, dangerous stuff, and, and not to mention his driving in a car record, which was which was pretty bad, but multiple safety violations on the job. And add on to that, by the way, that we have this crazy way in Massachusetts of doing... Uh, uh, judiciary funding, where we have a million different line items for each court, which no other state does, and that the, the Boston Municipal Court is the king. They get more money than any other court. They're the most politically uh, wired. wired court in the state. Do you know this guy? Do you know the judge? No, I don't. You don't? Okay, no. so I won't uh, brutal labor. It does not seem that they should be getting the most. No, but it does not. Just ask somebody in know. Springfield. <laughs> okay, uh, it's my other obsession, wind resorts or whatever this thing is called. Uh, it appears to me, uh, after this Wall Street Journal story the other day, suggesting what was obvious to all of us even before they did the reporting, that wind could not have been the uh, the uh, misbehavior, which is a euphemism that he was, with women who work for him and not have executives and uh, uh, and uh, board members know. And the Wall Street Journal article pretty much concluded, even though there was, the story, when we first started talking about this ages ago, there was a mid-level executive who said that he had reported these allegations to higher-ups and they had been very dismissive of them. I don't see any way, Shannon, 
even though it is really extreme that the Gaming Commission doesn't conclude it's not enough to take his name off the building, you got to take the company off the license because they're, quote, unsuitable as per the uh, uh, state statute, that, which says you got to determine suitability either to get a license or to keep a license. Yeah, I, I don't disagree, except the fact that so much is in the ground, so much money has been spent. How, how do you transfer something like this? Right. But I'm, but, but starting at ground one, if indeed they did not meet the requirements of, of basically good moral standing uh, and that whole thing, and that I, I, I agree with you. I think, I think that it's this pretty is clear that he didn't yeah. quite. He didn't make that quite standard. meet that standard. Well, you think <laughs> yeah. when Steve Crosby, the chair of the commission, who's with us quite frequently, said the other day, and I'm paraphrasing, but he, he he basically said to the Wynn people at the most recent meeting that this is an at-risk project yeah. going forward. I assume that the lawyers said you should say that so that if ultimately you determine they got to sell the uh, license. And it's always at risk. I mean, you know, having having run, you know, the lottery along, you know, as treasurer oh, forgot, a long time ago, right. you know, there, you know, I know a little bit about, you know, what some, you know, companies have to do in terms of gaming. And this is problematic, not just in the United States, but globally. Mm. And so there are ongoing uh, requirements that there be, you know, strong, you know, ethical behavior going on in these companies because there's so much opportunity for potential fraud and, and, and corruption. So it's not only at risk before they open up, it's at risk on an ongoing basis. So, you know, that that is something that the company is going to have to grapple with and whether or not they can, you know, maintain that uh, position, that's not, not a given. But, you know, it, it, one hopes, and I don't know any of the other commissioners except uh, Crosby, who I think we both think pretty well of, uh, this is a big deal. I mean, they're not stopping some little yeah. mon pa operation. This mm. is, I mean, Springfield is big. This is huge. Yeah. And it was supposed to open in, what, the right. summer of next year. Right. A lot of the construction is done. So it, it, it's a pretty... And that's the question. That's the thing I don't understand about this. I mean, are there companies that would say, okay... I'll, let's just continue building it the way we were going to build it, and then I'll take over the license. Is that unrealistic? I, I, I don't know. I don't the know. Everett Leader, which I had never heard of before, which I guess is a local newspaper, Shirley Leung brought it in when she was with us from the obviously the Boston Globe business columnist on Friday, and said that Shelley Adelson, the billionaire from Dorchester, who obviously is pretty powerful mm-hmm. in Las Vegas, was interested in what I found interesting. And I said to Shirley, if you'll recall, when the legislature passed the three up to three casinos mm-hmm. in a slots parlor, Adelson decided not to bid, saying that's too many casinos yeah, in this market. So yeah. maybe he's changed his mind. We'll mm-hmm. see. We're talking to Shannon O'Brien and Charlie uh, Chipio. You know, we're going we're, we're talking with our listeners about this in a couple of minutes. Uh, mm. uh, Boston City Councilor Ayanna Presley is challenging a Congressman Michael Capuano uh, for his congressional. Well, for I shouldn't say his, but for the the seat he represents in Congress. What is it? The ninth, the eighth? I always forget those. I think it's up. seventh now, but I'm not sure what it whatever is. it you is guys over there in Somerville, Cambridge. That for us? I think it's seventh. And, um, it used to be eighth. Um, anyway, they are in agreement on a lot of issues. <laughs> But seven. Thank seventh. you, Amanda. Uh, yeah, thank you very much. Sorry about that. Uh, but Ayanna Presley is making a, a point that she is unique. There, We have a congressional district that's all white, um, uh, mostly men, and she's— Not would, this delegation. Delegation, yeah. right. And she would be the first uh, woman of color uh, to be there. And her argument is that you look at things from through a different prism. Uh, you give a much-needed, uh, diverse uh, viewpoint that we currently don't have. So is that enough for her to beat uh, uh, Michael Capuano? They both have very compelling arguments to make in in this election year. You know, she is a highly regarded, you know, a 
elected official in Boston. She makes the point that, you know, it is important and, and I believe it is important to have diversity. I believe it's important to make sure that there are more women that are representing us in Congress, especially here in Massachusetts, where we have not had, you know, great uh, uh, success for women at, at, at higher level in office. You know, but at this point in time, Michael Capuano also um, has, you know, an argument to make about seniority. You know, when you look at, you know, our legislative delegation and if this Congress does um, go back to Democratic control, um, you know, there are some, you know, th there's a strong argument for him to make. So I think that they both are very good candidates. I think that she is going to uh, be bolstered by the Me Too movement, by the fact that women are, I think, going to be very active and very motivated to come to the polls. Uh, that being said, uh, Michael Capuano has a strong argument to make about the potential um, leadership and seniority he'll have uh, down in Washington. Well, I, I think there's also something more to that. As, mm -hmm. as someone like you who served in the legislature for a while, the, the unspoken notion I'm not embracing this, but I know this has always been the way. If you do your job and are true to the principles that your key constituents and constituent organizations want you to be, then in theory, you deserve to be supported again. But I can't tell you how many women, prominent women I've mm, spoken yep. to in this community mm -hmm. yes. who've said, I love Capuano. Yep. Yep. I would vote for him in any other circumstance, but I am voting for right. a woman. Right. And that woman happens to be Ayanna Pressley. I don't mean this disrespectfully no, 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 to no, Ayanna, no. the yeah. counselor. But it so happens she's the woman running. I'm sick of all these men, uh, even though I like Capuano. I mean, that is there is potential here. Oh, I think yeah. she. I think that this is you know in, in any other year, um, I think that you know this would not be an, an even fight. I, I think totally that Michael Capuano that. would walk into it. it. But she raised a significant amount of money in that last reporting period. She raised over three hundred thousand dollars. He raised five hundred thousand dollars. Both you know pretty good takes. Yeah. But for someone who has not you know been on that uh, broad a uh, you know a platform to raise that kind of money in that amount of time you know she she is catching fire and she's getting a great deal of in support. any of the year i don't think she would have gotten it right well that's yeah. probably true yeah. too yeah, yeah. yeah. Well, that was silence. Okay. That's the end of that discussion. <laughs> so speaking of women, can you just touch on yeah. this briefly before we break for national headlines? Go ahead, Mark. Well, um, there is a, as we all know, Stan Rosenberg is no longer the, oh. Senate, the Senate president up on Beacon Hill. Uh, he's been succeeded. There were problems with his estranged husband sexually harassing people and so forth. Anyway, uh, Harriet Chandler, who's, uh, I think she's 80 years old, close to 80 years old, is now going to be the, the uh, president until January. But Karen Spilka, uh, who is also a state senator, has enough votes, uh, she says, to become the Senate president. And she seems to be pushing Chandler out. And I get Spilka's perspective because her deal is, well, I may not have the votes come January. On the other hand, there's something unseemly about watching this happen. I'm not sure if I'm biased because it's two women or because I Please like don't call it a cat fight. I'm not really, call it. I have to say, John Vanaki's column, you know, referring to this as a spat, really ticked oh, me. Did you call it a spat? And, and it, it, you know, the problem is this is about power. Okay? Right. And, and this is what happens. You know, there are always fights over leadership and who's in charge. Yep. And the fact is Harriet Chandler, you know, was the consensus that people wanted to lead the body during this, you know, very difficult time. I was in the, you know, I was a state senator and, and you know, having something like this happen is very disruptive to the process of, you know, moving legislation, you know, forward. Um, that being said, Karen Spilka successfully uh, was able to get those votes. But to call this a cat fight or, or a spat, she called it a spat, that really ticked me in a lot of other people off. But this is not unusual. I mean, I was there, you know, when, when Bill Keating was challenging Bill Bulger. You know, right. 
Right. This was tough. What do you get, one vote, a zone? Well, a zone? No, no, it's no, like no, four no, or five. Like four, yeah. okay. but, but this is tough. This is personal. Um, you know, and, and it really does matter who the leader of the chamber is. That being said, I think that they both have done a very good job of finding a compromise. I think that, you know, uh, I think that Harriet Chandler deserves to be treated with respect because she took this on to take this challenge during a, a difficult time. I think Karen Spilka, you know, is, is uh, it's good that you have a consensus because you can move things forward. Um, you know, so so the fact that this is two women doesn't make any difference. So what do you okay, think of this really cat fight, Charlie? Well, <laughs> <laughs> well, Jim. By the way, I have to say, I think they're both wildly yep. impressive uh, yes. uh, uh, people, too. And yep. in a Senate, with all due respect that is not populated with wildly yeah. mm-hmm. impressive people. These are two of the... And by the way, I, I should interject before you okay. say... Hefner, I should say it wasn't just sexual harassment. The guy's been criminally indicted. Indicted, uh, yeah, so, yeah. Uh, yeah. So on criminal charges of, of assault, et cetera. I, I agree that this is totally common. You know, that, that's absolutely right. Here's the other thing, though, that I just don't understand about this. One is that it is... I mean, right from the beginning, it was obvious that the logical way to do this is to wait to the end of the session mm-hmm. in July and then have the vote before the end of the session and have the transfer of power then. But even more amazing, and this is inside baseball, is how in the world did they ever go out for that March press conference without having not, a deal? And not I agree, it was be ready to answer that question. Mm-hmm. I, that's the thing that just. I, I just, I'm just well, by astonished. the way, do we even bother to say there is a date now? Do we say this? Yes. It's yeah, the July, last week in April, 20, July. July. Well, exactly July, what, what always started. But can I do one sense? of these things that I hate with talk show people? They're both right. Meaning uh, uh, Chandler rescued the body when it was in deep trouble. Mm-hmm. But if another person has the votes and is going to be the permanent leader, then the permanent leader should take over the body. And I am telling you that this is unusual, that they were able to very professionally. Really? negotiate this you know i mean again going back to the 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 keating bulger fight going back (laughs) to kaverian mcgee you know those were tong wars okay Mm. you know and and people just you know you know you the legendary gold globe picture of them meeting on revere beach (laughs) oh yes that's right Right. so i am telling you this was an incredibly orderly in professional way that they handled this. Um, this is not, you know, any sort of a spat. This is when you have power, you know, and, and you have that position and, and how you, you know, relinquish that. I, I think that they should be applauded for how they've done Just it. one last thing and then we got to go. Uh, did Bill Keating, you know, the story on the Beacon Hill, of course, is when you go up against leadership and you mm-hmm. lose and you wind up, your desk is moved to the roof or to the basement or something. Closet. Yeah. yeah so, you so, can tell me where to sit. You can <laughs> tell me where to tell me where to sit. That was Ed yeah, Markey. That was Ed Markey. Right. Yeah. So, um, so we would assume that Harriet Chandler will not wind up in any uh, rooftop or basement office. No, I don't no, think, I don't think so. so. And I think that it was already announced that she would be part of the, quote, leader Team. I don't know what that means. Yes. You know, the only thing that I, um, you know, think they probably should uh, not leave open um, is is rather than waiting until um, next year, I do think that uh, the sooner you can put someone in as um, chairman of Ways and Means, because it is a, a pretty, um, you know, important job, very powerful job. Which is what Spilka is. Which is what Spilka is now. You know, I've 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 always had a little bit of an issue because it's, it's a fairly recent vintage that 
the chairman of Ways and Means goes to become either the speaker or the Senate mm. president. That never used to happen, I you know, know years that. and years ago. Really? It was very, very rare. And, and and it's literally the difference between the micro power of the nuts and bolts of the budget versus the macro power of leadership. And now, in recent history, that has been merged when you have more oh. and more chairman of Ways and yep. chairmen and chairwomen of Ways and Means. So I do believe that it's... Which in, is bad for well, the I think it's taxpayer. bad. I, I think it's bad for the body because... You know, you, 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 the power is more centralized. Okay. You know, when I first came in, chairman had more power. The chairman of Ways and Means, you know, there were individual sort of power bases. Rosenberg so, was doing that. Yeah, I mean, that was, was one of Rosenberg's major yeah, and assets. So that's one of the reasons I, he's very popular. Yeah. Yeah. And so I think it's really important to make sure that, that, that individual legislators do maintain, you know, that sense of, of individual um, ability and power. Okay, we're talking with Charlie Chipio and Shannon O'Brien. We're going to take a quick break and then talk about national politics. That conversation is next on 89. 7 WGBH, Boston Public Radio. Welcome back to Boston Public Radio, Jim Brady and Marjorie. And if you're just tuning in, we're talking politics with Charlie Chippio, principal of Chippio Strategies, and Shannon O'Brien, former state treasurer, former Democratic nominee for governor. And now we're going to come back, uh, or not come back, go away and talk national issues. Well, we're going to talk, it's going to have a slash national state because... Segway. That's right, because there are five oh, Massachusetts right, right, politicians right. who are, uh, you know, all the prognosticators say, not all, but some of them say, could be running against Donald Trump in 2020. One of them, no surprise, Elizabeth Warren, our uh, senator here, Joe Kennedy, a congressman, the guy who ran before, John Kerry, uh, Congressman Seth Moulton, and our former governor, Deval Patrick. So you want to give the, as Jim just said, the handicap? handicap. Handicapping? I, I, have, I, I'm, I used to be the biggest bookie in Massachusetts when I ran the lottery. <laughs> um, I'm not into, uh, you know, uh, putting odds here. You know, I think that all of them are very, very interesting, and I think that, you know, from Massachusetts, you know, there's this opportunity, the proximity to New Hampshire, um, you know, the fact that, uh, you know, this is the the, the Democratic, you know, um, sort of money basket here is Massachusetts for a lot of candidates who run for national office. But I think I think that this race is yet to play out. I think you're going to see lots of candidates, not just from Massachusetts, but across the country. For me, I think that, you know, it's going to have to be just like Jimmy Carter was a number of years ago. There's going to have to be sort of an antidote. It has to be someone who is skilled, you know, who I think can speak broadly to not just the left you know, of the party, but the center of the party. Mm-hmm. Um, I think that that is going to be the most important thing, um, you know, coming into the, the, the election season, which is probably already beginning. So without right. saying, you basically are saying Elizabeth Warren should not be the nominee. No, I'm not I saying that Elizabeth... she's saying Seth Moulton should be the nominee. I'm, no, but I mean, it sounds... I'm, it's not who I think should be the nominee. I'm just prognosticating yeah. about who might be the most attractive. It's not who who I want, who's my friend, it's, I think that mm. Democrats are going to be looking very closely at what is that, you know, antidote to Trump? Who can fix what Trump is breaking? How about you? Um, John Kerry and Elizabeth Warren will never be president. Uh, uh, Deval Patrick should not be because he was as bad a governor as he is an incredible campaigner. But since he is an incredible campaigner, he has a shot. Uh, and, but the, the, the guys to watch going forward are clearly, I think, Moulton and Kennedy. This round? No, I no, I don't mean just this round. I mean the guys who have the most this uh, the guys who have the most or are most likely to actually become president of this group are are Kennedy. I mean and someday. Then. But what about 2020? In 2020, uh, I think I think um, I think Elizabeth Warren gets four votes 
you know, 50, more than yeah. 50 miles away but from the coast. But are Moulton and Kennedy too young now? Or, uh, or I think so. I think they them? probably are. I don't think Kerry is a real factor. As yeah. I said, you know, as bad as I think Deval Patrick has been, uh, I think he's, an, he's other than Bill Clinton, he's the best campaigner I've ever seen. Yeah, so he, he is unbelievable. Shot. He is an unbelievable speech giver. Okay, so let's talk about uh, um, Scott Pruitt. I was uh, mentioning when you guys were coming in that I saw uh, Chuck Todd uh, meet the press yesterday. He on this uh, senator, Republican senator, Mike Rounds from South Dakota, and Chuck Todd kept uh, pressing uh, rounds on Pruitt because, of course, as we know, that he was getting a uh, renting a, a room in a condo, fifty bucks a night, only paying for the days he stayed there. It was a lobbyist <laughs> for the uh, uh, fossil fuel industry that owned the condo, uh, um, raising, giving these big raises to two top staffers. You know, first class uh, air flights, wanting a special, you know, bulletproof desk. That was the weirdest one of all. The it bulletproof desk, entourage. Mm. The- yeah. So anyway, a lot of ethical challenges for Scott Pruitt. And Todd kept saying, what about the ethics in this round? kept saying, it doesn't matter because essentially, I'm paraphrasing, it doesn't matter because he's doing what Trump wants for the EPA. But this does, even for Trump supporters, this is a swamp-like move by Mr. Pruitt. I think that that General Kelly has been clearly telling Trump that this is not someone who can stay in this position. You know, and as the talk shows were pointing out yesterday, he is the ad about how Trump has not drained the swamp. Someone said yesterday, it's what happens when you drain the swamp and you get to the very bottom after everything's mm. been drained and it's that gunk at the bottom. That's Pruitt. <laughs> and and that's I good. thought that was pretty that well stated. Um, but, you know, this this guy is problematic. He has been prior uh, to, to heading up the EPA. He has been ethically challenged. And, and I just think that the longer he stays, the better it is for the Democrats, although it is frightening how much damage he is doing yes. right now um, across the country. And by the way, at the same time, while people are speculating whether Trump is going to say I've had enough of him, there were rumors last week that he wanted him to replace uh, Sessions yeah. Yeah. as attorney general with but, Scott Pruitt. Yeah, yeah. Right. Look, there's two, there's two lessons here. One is that the lesson that the reason Scott Pruitt is still around and might actually survive is because he, has, he does what people like Macron have learned, that you just, you just hurl – praise at this guy and you can doesn't matter what you do as long as you say nice things about him and you feed his ego you always have a shot the other lesson from this is what you saw with with rounds is that you know these republican senators and congressmen are the neville chamberlains of the 21st century you know mm-hmm. the fact that they just take it and they find out ways to they find ways to try to defend this guy uh, is just it, it, you know but is it all fairness I, I don't know if this is mentioned there when you were talking about your criteria for why he uh, survives has he not been the most successful cabinet member in doing what matters most to in undoing this president, which is undoing Barack Obama's legacy. I don't even mean that sarcastically. Which is just so I mean incredible it. as we have these storms and and Boston's underwater, all these places around it with wildfires, all the evidence of, of climate destruction. Well, Marjorie, that doesn't, doesn't matter. That doesn't matter. It doesn't all, matter. That, all that matters to this guy is that a few years ago at the, at the White House Correspondents' Dinner, um, uh, uh, President Obama singled him out and made fun of him. And so his his laser like focus is just on trying to humiliate Undo Barack everything Obama. that Barack Obama yeah. uh, uh, did. Can we move on? Uh, to... Hold on for one second. I just want to ask you one really quick thing. 
Um, Paul Ryan, supposedly, I was reading this morning, I saw something on television about it, too, that Paul Ryan may not be running again for re-election, becoming increasingly unpopular among Republicans in Wisconsin. So I wonder if Paul Ryan, like everybody else who's not running in the Republican, well, not like everybody and else, that's but before the cranberry tariff. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> that's, that's right. right. That's right. That's actually. right. If Paul Ryan becomes one of those Republicans like Jeff Flake and, and briefly the other guy from Tennessee, the senator from Tennessee is not Corker. running again, Corker, uh, starts critiquing the president or not. Does he just go silently into his, I'm not running for re-election, and keeps his mouth shut? I think it depends on what his future ambitions are, probably. I mean, yeah. I, know that, I know that one thing about him is that, you know, he, doesn't, he, he hasn't made any money. And I know that, you know, he's trying to raise a family. And he's so, young. And he's young. And so he may, he may just be focused on that going forward. But I think his future political ambitions will determine how quiet he is. Yeah. yeah and I don't think he wants to run for president any day yeah. soon. I don't think yeah. that So maybe he'll his, say something. I think that Flake, you Which know, might is, matter yeah, since he's the Speaker of the House. Yeah. Mm-hmm. No, but it matters less when you, as you went Only down the after. list, but, when you but, decided. I mean, one of the few people who was, maybe I'm missing but uh, Jeff Flake, who we had on a couple yep. of weeks ago, was actually long before he said he wasn't yep. running for re-election. Uh, ben Sass from Nebraska, who no one ever heard of. Flake yep. is a fairly high profile. But the vast majority of these Republicans, with the exception of criticizing President Trump after Charlottesville, where there were a lot of them mm. who, who did that for his, you know, there's some decent people on both sides kind of thing. Uh, uh, it Virtually all of them wait until they make their choice. And it seems to me if in the same sentence it said after he retired or she retired or announced her retirement, I, I think the wait is very minimal. But I was only making sort of a, you know, Wisconsin is the uh, and number, one. Anymore, number one in cranberry production. That's one of the places that the Chinese are going after in terms of the, the tariffs. Mm-hmm. And there is going to be huge pain inflicted upon a lot of the, that state's economy. We saw Joni Ernst, you know, the hog farmer. You know, there are a lot of Iowa. these different Republican states. So I think that you may see on these tariffs, um, I don't think it's going to necessarily be this big, I'm, I'm, I'm not running and I'm freed to say what I want to criticize Trump. I think you will see in those individual states that are now finding that they have a lot of pressure on their economy because of his policies, I think you're going to see more Republicans. But why is he doing up. this? I don't understand. It. Why is he doing what? The tariffs. Because it, he doesn't understand global economy. But he understands people being upset in, in, his, in his base. Because in his... he didn't know that they were going to go tit for tat and specifically target those states where he got his votes. What do you well, think? Well, I think it's just, I find it just uh, two things. I find it amazing uh, that he is claiming, he's going to the Chinese and saying, we're going to do this. And at the same time, is publicly going to his supporters and saying, don't worry, this is just a negotiating tactic. But look, I I have to tell you, I, I'm of two minds about this because, you know, clearly in the short run, this is very damaging. But, you know, the way the Chinese conduct trade and and, and the kind of, uh, you know, uh, the kind what of extortion. The intellectual property? Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's yeah, got to stop. Little, but that's a different thing. One thing is tariffs. The other thing is what they do to create barriers, you know, to basically steal intellectual property from American businesses trying to do business there. I think those are two very, very different things. And and rather than, you know, talking about tariffs, which, you know, creates a lot of instability yep. because, you know, it, it, it's not an easy thing to manage. I think if he were more surgical about protecting American businesses trying to do business in China, right. that I think he'd be better well, off. Well, I, I totally agree with that, but surgical he's not. Yeah, so. no, no. <laughs> okay. Good to Thank see you, you very much, you guys. Charlie Chipio is principal of Chipio Strategies and senior fellow at both the Governing and Pioneer Institute. Shannon LeBron is former state treasurer and Democratic nominee for governor. Thank you very much for Thank coming you. in. Thank you. Coming up, Charlie's Senate is calling in from someplace in Great Britain. He always goes on these great trips. You ever notice that? Charlie Sennett joins us to go over the meeting of the Good Friday Agreement 20 years on. That plus his take 
and other international headlines, including what's going on in Syria. You're listening to 89.7 WGBH, Boston Public Radio. Boston Public Radio, Jim Browdy and Mardrigan. Last week, President Trump said he wanted to pull out of Syria, but uh, an apparent chemical attack on dozens of Syrian civilians may be pulling him right back in and ensnaring the U.S. in some geopolitical whodunit. Joining us in line for his take on this and other international news is Charlie Sennett. Charlie, of course, is a news analyst here at GBH, where he also heads up the Ground Truth Project. And as Marjorie said, he is calling us from the U.K., where we have heard that he is a judge on the international wife-carrying competition that <laughs> happened over the weekend. Who won, Charlie? <laughs> that was you know, great. Uh, that I was great. That. Yeah, we, oh. all, we all have burdens to carry. <laughs> um, we just, I, I, I missed that one. We Too just bad. saw it on TV. It's hysterical. It's These great. guys racing down the field with their wives over their shoulders. <laughs> it's pretty funny. Anyway, Charlie, this is Somehow not... Somehow it eluded the, 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 the gathering of of social entrepreneurs, I'm with you. This is the Skull World Forum. This is like serious stuff, okay? Oh, okay. Trying to deal with the world's issues. This is really, truly. Okay. But I wish you could see out my window. I'm in this, like, it is like, you know, this campus here at Oxford University is so amazing. It's so ancient, beautiful, and really very, very thrilling to be here. Well, Charlie, uh, let's get back to something else that was serious, tragic, obviously. Uh, we all saw these terrible pictures of these Syrians uh, supposedly ch- uh, choked to death, suffocated after this suspected chemical attack. The president, after the last chemical attack, of course, sent off those 75 Tomahawk missiles to the air base from which the chemical attack originated. Uh, we're waiting to see what his reaction is going to be this time around. But we got John Bolton, the much more uh, warlike national security advisor, starting today. So uh, what's, uh, what's, the, what's going to happen? Well, I don't, I don't know if you've seen the images of these attacks and sort of yes. the victims being rushed to the hospital. You can see, at least on Al Jazeera here, I was watching these, these um, images of, of the victims with this bluish shade to their skin, which is the, the reporters on the ground were saying is sometimes an indication of, um, you know, a really serious chemical attack, chlorine attack, or possibly even a sarin attack. I think they're still trying to figure out what exactly was the substance that was used. These attacks were in Duma, and this is a city that is in, under an intense siege right now. Um, the Syrian forces, government forces, are moving in on Duma, and these were these were apparently barrel bombs that were just, you know, leveling neighborhoods in this city. So, yep, 42. Uh, have died from the attacks, and hundreds more are suffering. And they're, they're you know, this is this is just one more um, terrible chapter in a war that seems to never end and keeps going on. And we have now President Trump talking about how there's going to be this swift response. Uh, what that response will be is, it's really uncertain. I mean, certainly we might see airstrikes on some of um, Syria's. Uh, you know, um, basically going after their ability to be able to get these bombs off the ground. So they'll try to go for their airfields. They'll try to take them out. We've done this before. This war just goes on and on, and I don't feel like 
for getting any coherent policy out of the Trump administration on what they're really going to do. What's the plan? We've got 2,000 troops on the ground there. Um, on the one hand, they're saying they're going to stay in for a while. That's at least what Rex Tillerson was telling us before he got fired. And Trump, you know, last week tweeting, I want to get the troops out. So tremendous inconsistency in policy and a lot of chaos and, and a lot of tragedy, death, and horrific chemical attack on the ground. So once again, a real mess. When you talk about inconsistency in policy in Syria, you can add Russia to the list at the same time the president is finally taking action against uh, uh, against Putin up until I Mentioned think in the last 24 hours, tweet. he actually criticized yeah. him by name in a tweet. On In China, we're involved potentially in a trade war at the same time that he tweets, President Xi and I will always be friends. What role is Bolton going to play in all this? A lot of people like to say, well, he understands his new role. He is not the fire. He can't be the firebrand and the hawk he once was. He's got to be counsel to the president. But from afar, it doesn't seem to me that's the kind of man that John Bolton is. What's your sense of things? Well, so it's really a pretty wild first day of work for John yeah. Bolton, as national security advisor, to come in in, this, in the middle of this crisis a chemical attack and and what is the most um, proportionate way to respond to this? I, Bolton is not someone who who we can who we can rely on for proportionate response in the middle of a huge crisis. This is a guy who is hawk is just too soft a word. This is a hawk among hawks, and what he's going to do is puzzling to me because he has such contempt for international organizations like the United Nations. Um, and they're going to be critical in coming up with a coordinated response from allies, including the UK, including France, and, and others who want to see uh, a toughening of, of the line on any or any regime that uses chemical weapons needs to be punished severely. And, you know, let's face it, Russia has a hand in this, uh, and definitely in its support for Bashar al-Assad in Syria, who carried out these attacks, you know, this, doesn't this put Bolton in a bind? I mean, he's a hawk, yet he doesn't want to honor any of the international um, mm -hmm. organizations that are, that are so effective at holding up these sanctions against anyone who would use chemical weapons. So I'm, I'm interested to see how does a hawk deal with this when you have to rely also on an international alliance to respond forcefully and aggressively. That's actually a great point. Good to talk. To, oh, no, we're not done with no, you. We're Hi, not. Charlie no, we're not. No, we've got a lot more. Missed I want to clock. talk to you about We're the, just warming up, Jim. <laughs> we're just warming up. I want to talk about the, the Good Friday Agreement, uh, which is 20 years 20 old. Years, and yeah. it, uh, there was a piece in The Guardian about this, which basically said Britain is ignoring this whole issue and shouldn't be. And your former colleague at the Boston Globe, Kevin Cullen, had a piece yesterday talking about the old uh, custom checkpoints may be springing up again along the border because with the Brexit vote in Great Britain, um, the Republic yeah. is remaining in the European Union while the North uh, get out of it uh, with the rest of Great Britain. And he talks about now you just go right back and forth over the border, no big deal, but this could all change. So where do you see the Good Friday Agreement on its 20th birthday, Charlie? Well, it, it is tomorrow will mark the day it was signed. And it is you know, if you kind of take the long view and you look back, you'd have to try to remember that when Kevin Cullen did such excellent work for the globe in the really bad days of the troubles, right? 30 years of violence yep. leading up to this agreement. This agreement did effectively end the violence. And they, Tony Blair was 
interviewed on the BBC, and of course he was one of the co-signers of the peace agreement um, uh, during his time as prime minister. And I thought he was smart about talking about look, the peace process has to be seen as a success. It's a celebration today to mark the Good Friday Agreement. Peace processes always take work, and they don't end when you have a signature. It carries on, as you put it, a generation or sometimes two generations. And I think we've got a whole other generation to go in Northern Ireland before there's real peace, before the walls really come down, before the checkpoints completely vanish. You know, they they had vanished for all intents and purposes, um, although some of the, the, the military towers remained you could you could drive and you can today drive across the border freely. What's going to happen with Brexit around that is a huge question, and it's one that a lot of the um, the loyalists uh, paramilitaries are very concerned about. This sort of idea being presented in Dublin that maybe there should just be some special deal to sort of maintain the region, all of the counties of Ireland, the 26 that form the Republic and the six that are the Ulster counties that form Northern Ireland. Maybe they should all fall under the EU. This is really worrisome to those uh, who signed the agreement from, from the Protestant side of this long conflict. Um, the so-called loyalists, the paramilitaries or the unionists, they feel that would be a direct betrayal of the good Friday agreement, which had as one of its key tenets that, Northern Ireland would remain as part of the UK until a majority of people uh, voted to join the Irish Republic. So that's this principle of consent, as yeah. it's called. That's critical. That's going to really come to the fore right now. And I think Brexit, you know, sets the stage for for a real crossroads for, for Ireland uh, in general, for Northern Ireland and the Republic of Ireland. Could we see them united? It is possible. Um, but it's going to take a lot of work, and it's, it, you know, no one's going to go forward with it unless there's a vote, because it says that directly in the agreement, and I think that would be honored. We're talking to Charlie Sanders calling us from Oxford, England. Speaking of being in England, and you mentioned Brexit repeatedly, what impact it has in Northern Ireland. What's the latest on Brexit and its implementation or the long-shot possibility of a second vote? Where are things? A lot of regret. I mean, there's buyer's remorse on Brexit, for sure, that you can feel, um, in, in, at least in many of the people I talk to here. One thing that's interesting is it's, it's sort of, you know, plodding forward. Theresa May is talking about the, the, this, this long, slow, and deliberate process will go forward. But there is a sense here, not unlike the meddling in our election, that the Russians played a role in, in meddling in the Brexit vote and in setting the stage for Brexit. And there are a lot of people here who feel like that the, the United Kingdom hasn't had enough of an airing, enough of an investigation into the role that Russia might have played in, in influencing that vote through fake news stories and through really going after certain you know, key electoral corners of the UK to try to drum up support for Brexit. Um, it certainly benefits Russia to see uh, a weakened EU. And it is, it is worth the UK stepping back and taking a deeper look. And I heard um, a group of journalists talking last night in London about this, this issue exactly, that there should be a kind of investigation like we've had in the United States around what was Russia's role, and if it was proved to have tampered, should there be another vote? So I'm, 
I haven't heard a lot of discussion of that until recently, and I'm very interested in watching where that goes. We're talking to Charlie Kenny, who's over in Charlie Oct- Senate. Charlie Senate. Whoops, Charlie Kenny was. <laughs> I remember him. Charlie Kenny, though. He Charlie was a good guy. He's a good guy. I haven't talked to him in a long time, uh, but he used to be a great reporter at the Boston Globe. By anyway. the way, before you continue, literally three minutes ago, the AP is reporting that Trump condemns the quote heinous attack in Syria, says he will make a decision on U.S. response in 24 to 48 hours. I'm sorry, Marjorie. Um, okay. Charlie Senate, not Kenny. Charlie Senate. This shows my ignorance, uh, which is vast, actually, to to be truthful about the Israeli-Palestinian conflict. Um, This story about Mm -hmm. this young journalist that was shot by Israeli forces, he had a flak jacket on, was widely, you know, his press credentials were right there. Uh, He was one of uh, Mm -hmm. many people uh, killed in this unrest over there. There was a little tale from him, which I found so touching, where he talked about how he did a lot of reporting Mm -hmm. up in the air from drones and how he wished one Mm -hmm. day he could actually be up in the air in an airplane looking down on his homeland. My question to you, I guess, is... um, did they just not look, or is the fact that you are a reporter clearly identified as one reporting not matter, or is it just that he was the fog of war kind of thing, that this young 31-year-old journalist wound up dead? You mean how was he killed if he was there yeah. doing his job as a journalist? I guess, yeah. Well, from what I read, from, from what I read about that story, um, there was uh, a, a whole line of tires burning, thick acrid black smoke billowing um it it is understandable how in it's not just a fog of war it's this plume of black smoke war that shaped that border and in that chaos my understanding is he was shot the israeli response to demonstrators and those demonstrators are not this is they are not model kind of modeled after gandhi or ml king these are these are guys who are throwing rocks they have some of them Molotov cocktails, they're burning tires, they're confronting the border fronts. That said, the response by the Israeli military has been disproportionate, and they are shooting people who are unarmed. So that, that line of fire coming from the Israeli side that killed so many in the last two Fridays when they've confronted this line, it's, there's real serious problems with that. In the Israeli media, when I was there last week, there was a lot of talk of the need for an inquiry into uh, this order. You know, who made the order for them to fire live rounds into a crowd of unarmed people? Even if they are challenging the fence physically, were there other ways to put down those demonstrations? And I think in the death of this journalist, the, the question, why are there live rounds being fired, looms heavily. It should for any human being. But I do think when a journalist is shot, we need to be there. We need to be on the ground. Um, and, and I do think that's, that's something we need to be concerned about. Something like 90% of the killings of journalists go unsolved. In this case, we know where the shooting came from. We knew, now need to take it further and ask, why are they shooting live rounds into those crowds? You know, Charlie, uh, before you go, we only have a minute or so. Before the early on, you mentioned you were at the Skull World Forum on Social Entrepreneurship. Marjorie and I were both going to go, but the uh, hot bar was on sale at Whole Foods this weekend, so we decided we didn't want to miss that. Understood. So, uh, yeah. for those who don't, what exactly is the Skull World Forum on Social Entrepreneurship? Sure, Jeff Skull is a um, is a guy who's started a foundation called the Skoll Foundation. They do a lot of good work. They support public radio. They support public television. 
Um, but they also support entrepreneurs around the world who are out looking at different different issues to solve. You know, there are, there are people here who are working on education of girls around the world. I met with a woman today who's got girls' schools in Liberia. There's a lot of people working in Afghanistan here, people working on poverty, big intractable problems around the world. And then we're here uh, because of our work with Ground Truth trying to help uh, a new generation of journalists go out and do these stories that matter. And an encouragement here among a lot of journalists who are gathered here, the idea is, are we telling the stories of people doing these great things in the world enough? Are we getting those stories out? And how can we do a better job with solutions journalism, looking at people who are confronting some of the world's really tough problems? Sounds great. Good luck. Uh, we'll look Charlie forward to seeing you back here soon, Charlie Sennett. Thank you very much, Charlie. Thanks, okay. Charlie. Thanks, Jim. Thanks, Marjorie. Charlie Bye. Sennett joins us every week. He's a news analyst here at WGBH, where he also heads up the Ground Truth Project. Coming up, we're opening the lines and asking you about the primary race between Congressman Michael Capuano and Boston City Councilor Ayanna Presley and what it means for the future of the Democratic Party. You're listening to 89.7 WGBH, Boston Public Radio. Noon on today's BPR, it's your turn. Ayanna Presley is challenging incumbent Mike Capuano for Congress, though they have virtually the same positions on almost all issues. So we'll ask you if in 2018, women get your vote no matter the opposition. Our TV man Bob Thompson on Kathy Griffin's return to TV. Then we're all revved up with the Pope's surprising statement on abortion and the poor. We'll open the lines and ask you, is four hours a day checking your email a tad over the top? Not enough. Or just right? How about this new law that would keep your boss from emailing you after hours? I'm against it. And then Boston Public Radio's very own poet laureate, Richard Blanco, with a poetry teach-in for Poetry Month, featuring Elizabeth Bishop and William Carlos Williams and his own poetry. That's Richard Blanco. It's all that coming up on Boston Public Radio, 89.7 WGBH. From a transmitter atop Great Blue Hill, this is WGBH. Live, local talk, Boston Public Radio. He's Jim Browdy. I am Marjorie Egan. You are listening to our number two of Boston Public Radio, 89.7 WGBH. Logan, Jim. Did I say it's going to be 61 on Thursday? Oh, it did. Sorry. Sorry. Jim has been seeing the praises of spring since the middle of March, and it's just not gone too well for him so far. You go to, I should have gone to meteorological school. Is there a meteorological school? What is there? 
I think you have to. What do you do? I think you have Science to go to college and study something? all that, don't you? So it's a little late for me. Yeah, it is a little late for you. So ahead of the 2018 midterms, much has been said about Democratic Party regrouping and reforming itself after this uh, devastating presidential loss for the party. But shakeups in the party are happening in our own backyard, too. We mentioned this briefly with Shannon O'Brien and Charlie Chippio. Over in the 7th District, longtime incumbent Michael Capuano is being challenged by Boston City Council Ayanna Presley in the primary, by the way. Both have progressive records. I think it's today's Globe story, maybe yesterday, I'm not sure. It says they're essentially you have the same position on virtually every issue. But on one hand, you have Capuano, who is a commendable 20-year record in Congress. I think most people agree. And the other is Presley, young African-American woman who's made a name for herself in the city council. So I don't, we don't care if you're in the district or not. We're just using this as a jumping-off point. In a race like this, who do you vote for? The tried-and-true incumbent who's delivered or someone who brings a fresh face, a fresh voice, and is a woman into the party. And with everything going on in the country now, from uh, the dismal news out of Washington to the Me Too movement, uh, I guess we're asking you, is: does Time's Up mean that uh, a lot of people who might not vote for a challenger in normal times would vote for a challenger if she were a woman? Eight seven seven three zero one eighty nine seventy. I don't know if I mentioned. I think I've mentioned this when Charlie and Shannon were here. I've spoken to a lot. I mean, more than a half dozen prominent women in uh, in uh, either who were in the district or who, or who give money to candidates who have said they ordinarily would never consider uh, supporting a challenger to a guy who's got a really good record like Capuana does, according to them, but are either supporting or considering supporting Presley because. We have to elect more women to Congress, and the Capuanas of the world might just be a uh, uh, you know a, in the wrong place at the wrong time. Yeah. Well, this is a tough one because there's so many uh, parts of this. On the one hand, you hate as a woman. I don't want anybody elected because they're a woman. I mean, it seems like the tokenism in the worst degree. On the other hand, you know, it is a Me Too moment. I mean, she's got a point when she says, and she said this in this uh, most recent Globe story by Joshua Miller, this is Diana Presley, mm-hmm. when you have issues that are being developed through a completely monolithic and homogenized prism, everyone suffers for that. And uh, our delegation, the Ma- 11 members of the Massachusetts delegation, none of them are black, none of them are Hispanic. Only how many women are, how many women are there? Catherine Clark, who's the second woman? Well, Nikki Sangas is stepping is down, obviously. Yeah. Are we missing one? This is, is horrible. There another woman? I don't, I don't think know. there's another well, woman. Well, it's Elizabeth Warren, obviously, but you're in the House. In the, the House. house. Yeah. yeah, the Congress. Uh, yeah. People, I think there's only one, Catherine Clark, and everybody's Also, there have only been like six ever or some pathetically small number. But there's, you know, there's a flip side of me that says if you do what you're being asked to do by your core constituency and you deliver – I mean, for example, he's a big transportation guy. I think most people would agree the billion dollars from the feds for the Green Line extension might not have happened without – Capuano and Shannon O'Brien mentioned his seniority too, especially if the Democrats take over is one thing. But the flip side is there are a pathetically small number of uh, uh, of women. You know, even in this era of women, I asked uh, Cecile Richards this not on our show but on television that night about you know when your mother was elected governor of Texas 28 years ago. If I had told you that we still wouldn't have woman president and uh, uh, we'd have only what is it roughly 20 percent of Congress are women. How would you feel? And she put the best gloss on it. But it's pathetic. But the flip side is if you deliver, shouldn't you be rewarded by well, re-election? I, I, think, mean, I, don't... I think one of the things that Capuano and Shannon O'Brien mentioned this before is uh, Capuano's got 
seniority. I just said that. Oh, you just said I'm that. I'm quoting okay. her. I'm quoting her. Well, no, that she... is a, that is the best argument. I, I mean, not that not that he hasn't been a good congressman. I think a lot of people like Michael Capuano. He's very good when he's on with us with our show. He's he's a very progressive guy. He's done a lot of great work in Somerville and Cambridge. Um, uh, but also that bring home the bacon kind of thing is a, is a very big deal, especially when we could use some money for our transportation system here. So 877-301-8970. So we're not talking about a situation unless you want to, where there's a totally incompetent uh, uh, woman who's running for office against a competent man. Let's assume they're roughly equal. Uh, Who do you vote for? And again, I don't want to just, we use this as a jumping off point. I'm not dying to focus on Presley and Capuano, but it's a good example of this. Who do you vote for? And I would argue, uh, Marjorie, that a disproportionate number of people in this year, if all things are roughly equal, say I'm going to vote for the woman where I might not otherwise. So, and there's hundreds of them running across the country. That. That's what you know. One of the big, uh, you see this stories all the time from all around the country. Uh, more women signing up to run for office. Eight seven seven three zero one eighty nine seventy. Eight seven seven three zero one eighty nine seventy. How compelling an argument. Uh, is gender for you if it's a talented and by the way, uh, she, Ayanna Presley has been at least the top vote getter. I think she was tied with Michelle Wu this last time around for the Boston City, City Council race. But she's yeah. got, she's you know she's been very popular um, in the city of Boston. But the district is not just Boston, as you know. No, the district obviously. is not just Boston. Uh, by definition, it includes Somerville because I think obviously that's an excellent point. Capuano is <laughs> Somerville, from Cambridge. Somerville, yeah. Isn't Cambridge a, too? I think a piece yeah. of uh, Cambridge, yeah. Uh, let's start with Jim in West Medford. Hi, Jim. Hey, Jim. Hey, how are you guys doing? Good. We're excellent. Thank you. Good. Listen, Jim Browdy, he's the only progressive in Cambridge that ever made it on my ballot. That's all I'll say. Oh, oh wow. That's impressive, Jim. <laughs> Listen to him, that evil laugh. It is an evil laugh. What's with What's the evil up, laugh, Jim? <laughs> People are blinded by the whole the whole race, the whole um, gender argument. I mean, like you said, he's going to have seniority, and he's going to deliver like he's delivered for 20 years. I just don't see the need to. Whoops. Whoops. Are you still there? As soon as yeah, he said, oh, okay. I thought you said as soon yeah. as you said you voted for me, people cut you off in the control room there. I I know I thought well that's so, so. that's I mean I, by the way I find that to be a pretty compelling argument. You deliver, you're gonna you're gonna have, you have a lot of seniority. Democrats may take over, but I have to say you know I don't dismiss at all the notion that we are women are grotesquely underrepresented, Jim, and you know there's a. a a lot of women with whom – you know who surprised me the other night? Maybe I shouldn't be surprised, but I asked her if I could say this. I don't know if she said it on the air. Martha Coakley, who I, I would bet doesn't get involved in a lot of primaries. I don't know. Former attorney general, obviously candidate for U.S. Senate, candidate for governor. She was a, a name sponsor of a fundraiser for Ayanna Presley. She's pretty much part – I don't mean this in a pejorative way – of the establishment of the Democratic Party. It's weird to support a challenger, but you know, there's a credible woman who's running against a – Credible income. Jim, thanks for the call, and I guess thanks for the uh, vote many, many, many years ago. 877-301-8970. Always take an opportunity when people mention my illustrious uh, career on the city council, yep. such as it was, and I don't give Marjorie an opportunity to mention that my most important act was protecting a, a tree by right. having an old yeah. woman chain herself That's to the right. tree. The old woman chain herself. Well, I did get the coffee, as you know. <laughs> I did go to Starbucks and got everybody, by the way, coffee. Even people I didn't know I bought coffee for out of my wow. own pocket and out of my campaign, campaign fund. fund. And I retired oh, I undefeated. Know. I think so. you kept the receipt and handed it in for the campaign Maybe fund. That's Maybe right I here, didn't. Jim. Did we save the tree? Is the tree still standing? The tree is still standing. 150-year-old tulip tree. 170 years old That's now. That's very impressive. Thanks to me. Stephen from Franklin. What do you think, Stephen? Hey, Franklin. 
I mean, hi, Stephen. Sorry. Hi. Hi. Uh, no problem. Hi, guys. Hi. So I don't actually have a, a horse in this race because I live in a different district. It's okay. But my question for you guys is, has there been any thought or talk about giving Ayanna Presley equal time to the regular segment that Michael Capuano has on your program? Actually, not only has there been discussion about it, we've mentioned it on the air. This We've encountered this in past situations for example it's a good example when we had uh, uh deval patrick was a regular on the show oh maura healy is a regular on the show running for re-election charlie baker is a regular yeah. on the show there will uh but by the way they're here obviously they're candidates but not here to advance their candidacy they're here as incumbents who people want to ask questions to but the long-winded answer to your question Stephen, is we have both discussed it and decided that she will, uh, come election time, be given equal time here, not because we're required to do it, because it's the right thing to do. So the answer is a very long-winded uh, yes, and it's the right thing to do. So that'll happen. And, I, it, and come the fall, when there's a Republican nominee to run against uh, uh, Maura Healey, who is here monthly, a Democratic nominee to run against Charlie Baker, uh, they will be given adequate and equal time, too. So, Stephen, thanks. It's a very good point and an important point. I'm glad you brought it up. Thank you. Mark, at the airport. How are things out there at the airport, Mark? You see any state troopers? That's uh, true. Always. <laughs> always, he says. Always. Uh, are they nice to you at the airport, Mark, or what's the deal? Uh, they're, I'm a driver, so they're nice to me. Um, That's I just, good. I try not to speed or anything like that. So. Yeah, okay. Just checking. They've been in a little trouble lately, the, <laughs> the troopers out at Logan Airport. So what's up, Mark? Um, so uh, while women are underrepresented, um, obviously, um, I think we do need to go with who has more experience or who more who is more qualified. Um, that being said, uh, maybe there should be you know term limits so that way people have a, you know a chance to get in that haven't Absolutely. been there. Absolutely, I'm fresh, with you. Fresh faces. Fresh faces. We so, need them. You know. Marjorie's a big mm-hmm. term limits guy, woman, and I am uh, historically uh, uh, not been. But the place where, and Mark, thanks for the call, uh, the place where I am with you is uh, there's a point at which, and maybe it is term limits, maybe Marjorie's right, there's a point at which people do have to create room, which reminds me, remember when Cecile Richards, outgoing head of Planned Parenthood, was here the other day? Yep. She used to work for Nancy Pelosi, yep. and I asked her a question, that, and she by the way, played pretty much by the rules. This is one answer she gave, uh, which uh, was rather sharp and obviously something matters to her a lot. Here's me and then Cecile Richards. Why is it sexist to say it is time for her to step aside and make room for a younger generation of congressional Democrats? Uh, well, Jim, what are the who are the men you would like to step aside in, in Congress or in elective office? Because uh, I look, we need more women in office, not fewer. And I just find it amazing that um, that the only person people talk about needing to leave Congress is, frankly, the most effective leader in Washington, mm. D.C., which is Nancy Pelosi. Well, she shut me up. Eight seven seven three zero one eighty nine seven. It's not two. the only person. She's not. By the way, did you see a story just as an aside what? today what? to talk about how serious the age problem is? And I did write a brilliant piece for the Globe uh-huh. Sunday Magazine about mandatory retirement for people in politics, academia, etc. The judiciary. Not talk show. Did you host, see that Steny Hoyer, who's the number two yeah. Democrat, is out in Wisconsin campaigning for Democrats because allegedly he's more of a centrist than well he is than Pelosi, so it's better there. And what is he also trying to do? According to Politico.com, lay a foundation to become the Speaker of the House. You know how old he is? 
78 years old. Now, Pelosi's 78, but she's the incumbent speaker. Right. Well, not speaker, minority leader. I mean, it is, you know, create some room for some new people. Jesus. So we're getting some emails from the district, Michael Capuano's oh, district. Here's one from Paula, who obviously is a woman. She, she uh, lives in, she's a progressive Democrat. She knows, uh, um, she may vote for Yana Presley, however, because in addition to being angry about the over-the-top misogyny that faced Hillary Clinton, she's also upset by the choice of all-male leaders in the field of education in Massachusetts. We just talked about this, actually, with Paul Revel. That a well, lot Shirley, of leaders... Shirley has written that nine, mm-hmm. uh, what is it, 10 years ago, five of the nine yep. state colleges were headed by women. Today, nine out of nine headed by men. So anyway, she says the local white guy who was a known factor was the choice for the position, while women and people of color from outside the area were bypassed uh, by this. And uh, she feels that that's a factor uh, in terms of where her vote will be. Then we have uh, Robin, who I uh, guess is also a woman. In the district, uh, In too? the district, yep. She's okay. proud to support him. He supported us for all his time in the House. He believes in the common good, human rights, women's rights, always puts votes and actions where his mouth is. I will not vote for a woman just because she's a woman, all things being equal. It's actually insulting for anyone to think I would do so. Um, and she's going to work for uh, the re-election of Capuano. Well, keep calling and writing if you're in the district. Actually, uh, uh, can we uh, – uh, well, we'll get to this person in a minute who's in the district. Sherilyn Dedham, uh, you are next on Boston Public Radio, please. Uh, hi, Cheryl. Hey, how are you? Thanks so much for taking my call. Hi. So my, my issue is that I think that, Jim, your argument is exactly what perpetuates not having uh, – um, a more equal gender split in our Congress across mm-hmm. the board yeah. or in government places is because you start out with the argument of, um, you know, would you would you vote for the man who's in the position and hasn't done anything wrong yet and has done all these good things? Or would you vote for the woman who is just a woman coming into play? So you haven't even named... Whoa, 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 whoa. excuse me. I have never said Ayanna Presley is just a woman. I said she's a real qualified woman. I cited the Globe story this morning saying she had virtually the same position on the issues as he did. And huge vote getter. Uh, uh, so your other point is a fine one, but I did not dismiss her in the slightest. But go ahead, Cheryl. Uh, okay, so okay, so that's true. Um, but... You start out with candidates' names, and then um, people come back in to vote, and it becomes just a gender thing. So it's this candidate because they have the experience against this candidate because they don't. And then we wind up never getting candidates. We don't even know what she can do in Congress because she hasn't been there yet. Well, but the flip side is – we uh, no, I totally see what you're saying. And by the way, what I try to do, but obviously not effectively, is to say I actually do understand both sides here. I said this to Shannon O'Brien earlier this morning. My traditional position on these things is if you're an incumbent and do the right thing, you deserve support. But I also know we're in an era where we have focused, as you clearly are, Cheryl, on the fact that women are grotesquely underrepresented in virtually everything, boardrooms, C-suites, Congress, obviously the presidency. And so uh, do those circumstances call for different kinds of decisions? I think you make a very important point. I think that's the primary basis for her candidacy. But Cheryl, thanks for pointing that out. We appreciate your call. Thank you very much. Pam says she thinks that Capuano seniority is very important, but much more important 
She loves his behind the curtain segment, Boston Public Radio. <laughs> well, so do I. Which I do too. Actually, you know, if, if people haven't looked that up, that is on on the Congress website, and it talks about all the things, particularly environmental things, which which I worry a lot about uh, that the president has done by executive order since he's been in in power, and a lot of them are really upsetting. And if you are a, a green earther type person, really upsetting as well. Eight seven seven three zero one eighty nine seventy. The question is about. A woman taking on, and she's not just a woman, she's a black woman. I mean, we don't have a single black person or Hispanic person in our delegation. Uh, we have all men, all white men, except for uh, Catherine Clark. And I keep thinking I'm missing a woman. But Are we I'm missing not. someone in there other than Nikki Songas, so. who's retiring on the House? No, just the. So and by the way, but I don't want to, it's fine if people want to talk about Presley and Capuano, but there's a larger question. This is not just playing out in the seventh CD. No, it's playing out all Boston, over the country. All over the country, right? Yeah, and I think it's it's um, it'll be very interesting to see. There's endless stories, which I'm sure everybody's seen, about all these women joining the fray uh, for the 2018 elections. It'd be interesting to see what how it all plays out. Daniel in the car. Hi, Daniel. Hello, Daniel. Hey, Jim and Marjorie. Thank you very much for taking my call. Sure. Uh, I just wanted to make uh, two quick points. First one, Marjorie sort of brought up, I think diversity is, is really, really important. Yep. Uh, I don't know if you saw, uh, there was a, uh, a video of a, of an exchange in a city councilman's meeting in Georgia, uh, where the former city councilman was, was, uh, talking to a current city councilman who was a black man. The former was, a was an older white man from a different, he you know, self-proclaimed a different time. And he was talking about the change in, in racial dynamics in, in the area. Uh, and in doing so, he, he overtly used the, the race, the, the N-word. Ah! And um, ah! the, the current city councilman was the only person in the, whole, in the room that was offended by it because the context wasn't overtly racist. He was trying to discuss something about how, how things were changing, but he just used the N-word outright. And and nobody seemed to catch it except the one black person in the room. <laughs> so oh, I think that's... having diversity is, is very important. Well, that that is one of her big points, Daniel. I'll repeat what she said, that when you have issues being developed through a completely monolithic and homogenized prism, everyone suffers. And it is true that you see things differently if you're a woman. You see things differently if you're an African-American woman. You see things differently if you're an Hispanic woman, and, and right down the line. So, you know, that's one of her... Um, you know, big points is I think one of the things we've learned from the Me Too situation is that women have seen sexual harassment much differently than men. I mean, that men say, well, I can't say anybody's got a nice dress on anymore, which is just ridiculous. You want to just We say, don't hear many of those anymore. Well, that was early goodness. on in the Me thank Too. Thank goodness. Yeah. But that, that is what you hear before. Oh, you're ruining all the fun, right. all this kind of stuff. Like, so you can't... <laughs> If you can't sexually harass a coworker, what the hell is the I point know, of going to work? But I mean, there was a lot of that, and You're I think totally finally right. people right. have You're realized. Right. You know, we're not talking about just saying, "Oh, you look nice in that dress." We're talking about rubbing your genitalia up against somebody's shoulder in their office. So that would be Mark Halpern. That would be Mark Halpern. That's right. So, and there are other techniques other people have employed, as we all as we all know. So, I think that's the thing that it's a strong argument she's got. You know, Daniel, thank you for the call. You know, if I were you, now is the time. I would argue even more strongly for something you and I have disagreed on for decades that we've been on the air together: term limits. Because the problem is. You know, if if one says, as I do, that an important issue, even though I have seen both sides, as I tried to say to Cheryl from Dedham a minute ago, uh, of the power of incumbency, incumbency and doing the right thing. So what you should say back to me is based on that criterion, Jim, 
So you're going to say we should continue to have the same white guys who are there essentially forever or for another 10 or 20 years. And the way to deal with that is maybe not just to have candidates of color and women, you know, stand up and oppose them, but also to terminate them, sort of like I proposed in well, terms we wanna, of... We don't want to terminate I don't mean them. terminate them in a, in a final sort of way. Arnold Schwarzenegger. But I would argue that that's even more powerful. Because, by the way, this is a different kind of race. They both raised a ton of money. Yep. It is really hard. If you believe, if you're of the school that says it's time for women, I'm, as long as they're qualified, I'm voting for a woman. I don't care what the race is. The incumbents have huge financial advantages because well, they can go to the key constituencies. How do you undercut that advantage with, respect, with your policy, term you limits? To- well, you are totally wrong about term limits. We absolutely need term limits. And the biggest reason we need term limits is that Charlie Chippio, who used to be a Republican, I think he might be an independent uh, these days, but he's supported a lot of Republican candidates. He's what I would call – Worked for Romney. Yeah, he worked for Romney. He's a small government, low-tax kind of guy. But he talked about the Republicans we're seeing now. In they're like Neville Chamberlain in World War II, denying the Nazis. You know the the, the, the people. But there are many more. This issue that we're discussing, many more women are challenging incumbent Democrats yes. than are challenging but the, Republicans. But the point is, unfortunately, what we're seeing in Congress now is too many people who do not do the right thing because they think it's going to hurt their reelection campaign. You're right. And we in the media fall into that uh, trap all the time. We talk about, well, what about so-and-so's reelection? What about so-and-so's reelection? We kind of forget the point of their being there is not to get reelected. Mm, the point of their right. being there is to try to do things uh, for their constituents. And, and You know that old great line, the only thing they stand for is reelection. Well, exactly. Brian, it's time to wipe that uh, line away. Okay, then. Okay. Brian, you're in Somerville. I know you're, you're coming with me, Jim. No, and by the way, I'm open-minded you're, you're on the edge. in 2018. You're I am on the, edge. on the top of the fence. Can I tell you, I'm teetering right over. on a whole bunch of issues, uh, if really? you know what I mean. What else? Well, I'm, I'm talking about other kinds of things. So oh. it's Brian in Somerville. You're next on Boston. Is this your new diet or something? Maybe it is, or maybe it isn't. <laughs> Brian in Somerville, you're next. Welcome, and hi. Uh, thanks for your patience. Welcome. Hi. Um, the financial piece is a great segue to my point, and that is that Political life is all about choosing your battles. And would you choose that your battle would be if you want a Democratic Congress that uh, each Democrat gets primaried by someone so that all of the money is spent uh, fighting over who is going to be in the minority for the Democrats? Because that seems to be Presley's position here from my perspective. It's that if this if she were to win the message sent across the country and here will be that we should fight amongst ourselves instead of trying to win more seats nationwide every dollar given to either candidate in this race should be given to swing districts where democrats can take the house and capuano has got a, done a great job and i'll be voting for him as a constituent but that's not my point. My point is that this is precisely the battle we should not be choosing at this point. Well, you know, that's so, an interesting point, Well, though. if you assume, because there's not going to be a serious Republican, but your point is don't even spend the money locally. Contribute to some campaigns where, elsewhere. Yeah, where you can Most make a of difference. us don't do that. Most of us contribute right. to our local candidates but, if we do But it, it is a great point, though, because the chances of a Republican winning a congressional seat here is really obviously tough because Massachusetts, the Republican Party is so weak in Massachusetts. That is a great point. If you only have so much money in the pot, why not put it to where it can get the most bang for your buck if you're a Democrat? Brian, thank you for uh, that. Yeah, that uh, is. I hadn't thought of that. What? I had not thought of that. Well, you thought of it now, right? I, th- I thought of it now. That is correct. Okay, we got to end this. Oh, we're done. We do. We're just getting warmed up here. You really are. <laughs>
That's great. <laughs> yeah, okay. We're done, though. So up By next- the way, this is really, I mean, it, it is sort of the Petri dish race because they're both raising a lot of money. Yeah. They both have and high they're both profiles. they're both very popular. They're both popular. Mm-hmm. They're both, uh, 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 well, um, yeah. You know Capuano is, too? He's a great debater. Remember we had the governor's debates when he ran for governor a few years ago? Mm-hmm. Who won all the debates? For my money, it was Michael Capuano. Mm. What do you think? Uh, I prefer not to take a position on that, Marjorie. Okay. In truth, because I can't remember the debates, it's not because I'm yeah, trying to well, be Yeah, I remember, and he no, did very No, I know, you well. came in, I remember you saying on the radio, you thought you did very well in we the debates. We moderated too. the debate. Whoops, we did? Yes. Was we I did. there for that? You were there. How'd I do? Oh, my God. Oh. <laughs> Up next, Donald Trump snubs oh, the White God, House right. press correspondence dinner again, and that's supposedly ground zero for his decision to run for the presidency. Our TV authority, Bob Thompson, joins for that. And much more. Bob Thompson is next on 89.7 WGBH, Boston Public Radio. Welcome back to Boston Public Radio. Jim Browdy and Marjorie Egan. This week in TV seems to be all about reboots, redemption, in the case of Tracy Morgan, whom I love. A major return. He's starring in the new comedy, The Last OG. It's about second chances, something Tracy Morgan knows something about after surviving that horrific car crash in, I think it was 2014. Joining us for his take on this and other TV news is Bob Thompson. Bob's a uh, professor and founding director of the Blyer Center for TV and Popular Culture at the Newhouse School of Public Communications at Syracuse University. Hello there, Bob. Hey, how are you two? Excellent. uh, Excellent, Bob. Great to talk to you as always. So let's uh, be upbeat. Start with your best. What is it? It's going to go to The Last OG, which is kind of a Rip Van Winkle story told in modern-day Brooklyn. Tracy Morgan's character uh, uh, gets um, sent away for 15 years on a drug charge, uh, and he comes back to Brooklyn 15 years later. And as we all know, Brooklyn is a very, very different uh, place, which he has to then get used to. Um, Great to see Tracy Morgan. Tiffany Haddish stars as his girlfriend, who, of course, when he gets back, she's married. She has two kids, twins, that turn out to be his. Uh, he's, uh, she's married to a white guy. Mm-hmm. And my favorite line in the pilot, which debuted uh, April 3rd, uh, she's trying to justify that he's a good guy. And at one point she says, he writes voiceovers for Anthony Bourdain. <laughs> Oh, Isn't no. Jordan Peele involved in this in some way, or Jordan am I wrong? Jordan Peele is a uh, uh, co-creator Great. as well, so a very, very strong pedigree. Now, I'll have to say, this so far is not uh, uh, anything I would call a masterpiece. It's got some uh, uh, issues. I've only seen the pilot. Um, but still, I think it has promise, and uh, uh, it's as we pointed out, Jordan Peele, Tiffany Haddish, Tracy Morgan, Cedric the Entertainer, Ooh. lots of uh, good people uh, tied into this. Let's play a little clip from this uh, first episode. Is this the pilot of the first episode? I'm not sure, but it's something from The, la- the Last OG, uh, where Trace, we said, played by Tracy Morgan, and he's trying to depart uh, some wisdom before he leaves prison after that 15-year stint. Here it is. That was 15 years ago. I haven't seen my girl since. Prison will change a man. I'm wiser now, but still I remain humble. I also might be the best chef the world has ever known. You gonna give up that recipe before you go? If you give a man a fish, he eats dinner. But if you teach a man a fish... Yeah, yo, there's, there's fish in it. I'm doing a proverb, my... Prison pad thai. 
Don't go overboard on the peanut butter. Two packets are way too much. His final move from prison is to give uh, uh, give up his recipe for what he calls prison pad thai. <laughs> <laughs> Not exactly a scene from Oz, but uh, I guess close enough. Yeah. Uh, it, it debuted to 1.8 million, which is the best TBS. This is on TBS, mm -hmm. the best original scripted debut they've ever had. Now, to put that in perspective, the debut of Roseanne is hovering around 20 million, but 1.8 for uh, TBS uh, is a pretty solid opening. By the way, Tracy Morgan is one of the handful of comedians who all I have to do is look at. They don't have to speak. I know. They don't have to do anything. I know. He, I, I love this. Guy. I know. I hope it's and, really... and we have to remember that this guy was uh, in a coma. Oh, I know. Uh, somebody else died, died in that yeah. car accident. Two two others were uh, uh, injured, and within I don't know, was it a year and a half or something? He was hosting Saturday Night yeah. Live. I mean, it's not only a Rip Van Winkle story in fiction; it is in art or in fact as well. Okay, so let's go from best to worst. What's your worst? Oh, I'm, I think I am contractually obligated to give my worst to Jersey Shore Family Vacation. <laughs> oh, MTV goodness. has decided to uh, 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 reboot uh, Jersey Shore, which went from uh, December of 2009 to December of 2012. And when it was on, it was a cultural phenomenon. It gave a whole bunch of phrases and abbreviations and all kinds of other things uh, to the culture. It was a huge hit, uh, both in the zeitgeist and in the uh, uh, numbers as well for MTV. Uh, but since the show uh, happened, you've got uh, now, you know, a couple of them are married and have kids. Uh, you know, they've gotten older, and the idea of now bringing them back, not to the Jersey Shore, they brought, brought them back to uh, Miami, and uh, it, it, the, the whole thing was an interesting experiment back in 09 to 12, uh, but now the whole thing just seems a little bit pathetic. Well, uh, this 30-second clip I'm about to play where the situation explains his current legal troubles <laughs> will be the only 30 seconds I will ever hear or see of this particular uh, Jersey Shore family vacation. So here the it is. Names the situation oh. went off pretty well. well yeah. <laughs> here he is. Off your lips. Here it is. Ready to go? Yeah, man, I'm ready to go, man. I'm real excited, man, because I, I thought y'all was going to go without me, man. You know what I mean? We'll never I, go without you, bro. I know. You I know can't... we made this pact together. To yeah, I know, but you. I couldn't leave the country. and then I, I heard. Yeah, I couldn't leave the country. I got this little court situation. How's that looking? It's rough out there in the streets, you know what I mean? Right now, I'm going through a major federal court case. I'm being accused of uh, tax evasion, and I'm trying to move forward. I have respect for the system, the judge, the process. And faith in God that I'm going to move forward one day at a time. Well, if he has faith in God, maybe yeah. I should give it a look. But he's sober. He's well, sober yeah. now. He's, he's quit drinking. He's yeah. quit uh, uh, taking drugs. I mean, he's oh. kind of the the, the uh, uh, you know solid uh, guy coming back. The rest of them are doing the same old stuff they'd always done since the uh, uh, since the first one. Um, and at first he couldn't come because he had this court thing. Uh, but then, of course, that gets resolved. He shows up, and uh, uh, the first episode ends happily. Okay, okay. well, we're so talking we can, to Bob Thompson. We can miss that one without feeling too bad about it. Speaking of returns, Kathy Griffin, you know, by the way, I, I want to be clear here. Like everybody else, I was appalled by the, you know, the severed head of uh, the Trump lookalike with the blood. But, you know, it was almost like she was never going to get a second chance. But apparently, after I don't know how long it's been, apparently Kathy Griffin, while she's not going to be doing New Year's Eve with the Anderson Cooper anytime soon, I guess, she is back in the mix, yes? 
She is. She's been on tour. Uh, she went on Howard Stern last week. Uh, she was on Bill Maher uh, last month. And uh, the new uh, uh, President Show, Comedy Central's The President Show, this is the whole show with that guy that does a really good imitation mm. of, uh, uh, of Donald Trump. Uh, the second season of that started, and she did a killer Kellyanne Conway on that first episode. Well, you know, Marjorie and I just watched that, uh, that little clip, and my favorite part of the whole thing was the president introducing Kellyanne Conway, and he says, here she is, the lone survivor of the Bowling Green Massacre, which I assume every Everybody remembers was the massacre that didn't happen that she uh, talked about. I thought that was pretty funny, actually. And she's uh, she is now very aggressively defending herself. Uh, you know, she says that that picture was uh, distasteful, but not a criminal act. And she, of course, was having trouble at airports. She was being uh, uh, investigated, and now she's headed for the Kennedy Center and no less than Carnegie Hall. Wow. Wow. So when she says it's a double standard, was she talking about her being a woman or or that this was Trump or um, what is she talking about? Do you have any idea? Well, I think there were a number of uh, uh, things going on, but that double standard uh, gender has probably got yeah. something to do with it. The fact that it was uh, uh, against Trump. I mean, people have done some pretty ugly uh, political satire, if that's what you even want to call that picture uh, uh, before. But I think there was a sense, and we all agreed. I think we gave that a worst when it came out, didn't we? I, mean, I think so. We all agreed that that picture of her holding what looked to be Trump's severed head yeah, uh, was probably not something that uh, any of us would have uh, done or thought was something that uh, uh, should be done. But the idea that she became part of a major you know, investigation, the idea that anyone would actually think she was a threat to uh, uh, the nation, I think was probably a significant overreaction. Okay, we're talking to Bob Thompson, our TV guy. Uh, Bob, uh, uh, President Trump is apparently not going to go to the White House Correspondents' Dinner. He didn't go last year either. He held that rally somewhere, sort of the alternative programming kind of thing. Um, Does this matter? No, I don't think it does. Uh, I think, uh, I don't know, we can probably speculate what his motivations are uh, for not going, but you know my opinions on this White House Correspondents' Dinner. I think uh, uh, the people who cover the White House and the president uh, cozying up to the president was never a uh, good idea. And while Barack Obama did some spectacularly great stand-up in the ones that he uh, attended, as did other presidents before him. Uh, I think the idea of the president not going to this uh, is a good idea. Now, Trump's motivations, again, may be complex, but no. In, the, sh- the short answer to your question is no, it doesn't matter. Yeah, I think it's in, in, in many ways it'll be a more fun night. I don't even understand how he does go. When, you know, I, we have tomorrow, we have Michael Kirk on, who's one of the leaders, uh, great frontline people. So I was watching last night this latest thing he did on Trump that's going to air tomorrow night. And, you know, I forgot, even when he's doing the press conference right after Charlottesville uh, in the lobby of Trump Tower, and he's being really combative with the reporters. This is where he makes the infamous, you know, the good people on both sides thing. In, even at that moment, when one of the reporters is shouting a question, he yells back at them, uh, uh, you know, shut up, fake news. You know, it's just so cheap and tawdry and disrespectful to the industry, whether you love Trump or hate Trump. I don't see how they could have had the guy there uh, to, give, uh, to begin with, even though there was an invitation. So uh, I don't know. 
Well, and the history of this is kind of fascinating because, as as we know, it was at one of those correspondence dinner, dinners that Barack Obama made the Trump joke that some people say was the catalyst that got the yep. whole uh, yep. uh, campaign started. Uh, and secondly, um, <clears throat> Trump was roasted on Comedy Central back in, I think it was 2011, when he was still considering running for the 2012 uh, election. And uh, he went to that. He sat through being roasted. He kept his mouth shut, and they were saying some really tasteless, horrible uh, 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 things. Those roasts can be really, really ugly, not only the people being roasted, but all kinds of uh, uh, really nasty jokes. And uh, Trump got up then and did a little bit. It was pretty competent, and he uh, uh, did it. He, he was actually, I, I hate to say this, but one of the classier performances of that 2011 roast. Really? Find that hard to believe. Well, you should go back and look at it. Historically now, it's a fascinating piece of cultural archaeology. But, you know, don't you find in general, when I've seen Trump giving interviews on TV shows in earlier days, there was uh, – he, he wasn't like he is now. I mean, talking about, you know – Well, you and I both watched Get Me border. Roger Stone, the Netflix documentary last week. Ten years ago, he was uh, he was fit – uh, uh, relatively witty, yeah. uh, clear talking. I mean, it was almost like a totally different human yeah, being. Yeah, it's, 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 it's a different... I mean, he's all about the base now, and he's all about pleasing the base, and that comes with some pretty rough territory, and he didn't used to be that way. So I'm always you, wishing we had the old Trump. <laughs> no, you know, you're right. When he was doing cameos as the kind of typical prototype rich guy yes. on all of these sitcoms from The Nanny to The Jeffersons to The Fresh Prince of Bel-Air and lots of others, or the Home Alone 2 movie, yep. uh, he, he was actually quite good. Yeah. I continue to contend, and I'm sure I've said this before, that when he started doing those uh, wrestling, those WWE things, yeah. the Battle of the Billionaires and all that kind of thing, that's when you first see the rhetorical Donald Trump that we see at the rallies. And I think when he was talking to those wrestling crowds, he got some kind of heroin in his blood. He loved the response mm. he got. And the louder he talked, the more response he got. And I think if you really want to see the uh, the flashpoint of that switch from those two things we're talking about, those are the clips most useful to watch. You know, by the way, when I'm laughing, as you're saying, I was not laughing at you. I, I, I don't know why. Well, I do know why I thought. I had Nell Scavell on TV with me the other night. I don't know if you know who she is. She's a comedy oh, writer. She wrote for Letterman. She's she great. did uh, uh, Sabrina the Teenage Witch. She just wrote a book called Just the Funny Parts. And in the back of her book, she wrote a lot of the jokes for Obama at the last White House press correspondence dinner. And in the back of the book, she, which I don't have in front of me unfortunately she had the jokes that he didn't use and one of them i I hope i don't totally butcher this but i've been laughing about it for days she's obama says you know i had a colonoscopy a couple of days ago they went in there what did they find they found mitch mcconnell he's obstructing everything in any case okay he didn't choose that one but wow uh, i think uh i think barack obama was wise in not finding that one we're talking to bob uh thompson but the book was called just the funny parts why did she include that she said and a few hard truths i forgot the uh, second half of the thing okay gotcha gotcha. i thought it was funny hey uh i was not that interested in this joe paterno uh hbo thing until i heard that al pacino who i also love is playing the lead what's the what's the deal on this 
This debuted on uh, Saturday, and not only is Pacino in the lead, uh, not chopped liver, it's directed by Barry Levinson, who gave us The Diner, The Natural, Good Morning Vietnam, won an Oscar for uh, uh, Rain Man, goes back to co-writing with Mel Brooks on Silent Movie Mm -hmm. and High Anxiety, uh, and did uh, some great TV, Homicide and Oz, so um, uh, lots of really good uh, people in this. It, it was really interesting. I watched it as it uh, debuted on uh, Saturday. And Pacino looks like Paterno. It's a really understated performance. Um, the whole thing is understated. And what I love about it most is that it was a one-night movie. Uh, after what do you going, mean? sitting through Waco and the Johnny Versace thing oh. and the Tupac Biggie thing, these multiple <laughs> episodes, and all of those were good series. But... By the time I got to the end, I felt like um, it's like April in Syracuse. Winter is fine, but at some point you're ready for it to be over. So without giving it away, is it at all sympathetic? To Paterno, or how would you describe how it uh, well, characterizes? Well, put it this way: it's it's not at all sympathetic to Jerry Sandusky, who, of course, was of course. the center of all of this. All kinds of accusations, we uh, going back to the seventies of his uh, uh, abusing children, and he set up that whole. Uh, charity children's thing so that he mm. could have, have access, access to, to more kids yeah and i think what what the what the moral of the story really is is that you get one guy jerry sandusky who does horrible horrible things and that you have all these other people surrounding him who aren't horrible people to start out with but because they are protecting such an enormous institution that was Penn State football, they end up doing things or worse or more accurately not doing things like reporting this, making sure that it stops and all the rest of it. So that that one act of uh, or that that one guy Sandusky ends up spreading out all of this other stuff that implicates other people and that gets them to do bad things uh, themselves. So, no, by the end of it, it's not sympathetic to Paterno. However, as someone watching the movie, you do have some empathy uh, for him. Um, And Pacino does say, I would have never thought of Pacino as Paterno. Nor would I. You know, a a friend of mine who watched it was telling me that he thought um, that it was also that Paterno, all he cared about was football. He barely knew who the president was. That is all he cared about. Yeah. So, I mean, but some people are a little bit more aware that anything that was going to be a distraction, whether it was uh, any kind of political thing or any kind, whatever it was, he just wasn't interested because all he did was focus on on Into his 80s, by the way. Yeah. Oh, right. 84. Four, I think he was, and uh, it, it, right. I guess there's there's two original sins in this story. One are the uh, decades-long acts of uh, uh, Jerry Sandusky, but the other is the, and let's just uh, come right out and say it, the cesspool that is Division I oh, big-time yeah. uh, uh, college athletics. And you put those two together, and it was a really, really bad combination. So what's the watch this uh, coming week here, Bob? I'm sorry for this one, but uh, <laughs> I'm going to have to go with Lost in Space. Oh. Lost in Space? Wasn't that on 50 years ago? <laughs> yes, that's almost exactly right. It went <laughs> off the air exactly 50 years ago in 1968. Um, 
I was six when this show started on CBS <laughs> in 65. And uh, Lost in Space was a great show for the mind of a six-year-old. Let's just put it, uh, yeah. uh, put it that way. Um, and it's been tried a couple of times before. The, uh, uh, in 1998, they made a uh, film, which uh, did all right, not in well enough that they ever did a sequel to it. But um, it had the distinction Titanic had been number one for 15 weeks straight. And when Lost in Space opened, it actually knocked it out of number one. But it was by no means a big blockbuster. And then the WB did a, um, uh, had a pilot for uh, a remake back in about, uh, I don't know, 04, something like that. That never got uh, picked up. So now it's getting the Netflix treatment uh, for 10 episodes. And the reason I've got high hopes for this is it is a much more ambitious-looking uh, 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 thing. Mr. Smith, the kind of evil guy that was stuck on the planet with them, is played by Parker Posey, a woman, so they've uh, changed gender there. The relationship uh, of the family is much more complicated and uh, sophisticated. And I keep going back to Battlestar Galactica, the original network show back in the what late 70s, early 80s, somewhere around there, um, was a pretty dumb show. The new Battlestar Galactica that played many years later was one of the best science fiction uh, uh, television shows ever made. So I think just because we think of Lost in Space in that campy 60s kind of way doesn't mean that it can't be reclaimed in interesting ways. And let's also remember that Lost in Space debuted in, on CBS in 65, a year before um, Star Trek, which in many ways kind of stole its thunder, but stole a lot of other things from it as well. So here's a clip from the trailer for the new Lost in Space. We're lost. No kidding. This is Will Robinson of the 24th Colonist Group. I'm the first human to discover evidence of an alien intelligence. Hey, quickly before we go, are there more reboots on television now than in the history of the medium? Well, there's more everything on television now. Oh, that's a good point. Isn't because it? there's that's just true. more television, yeah. uh, 500 scripted shows or whatever. Um, so, yes, there are a lot more of them, but they are nothing new. Dragnet on TV in the 50s was rebooting Dragnet on radio. Um, and then Dragnet in the 60s was rebooting Dragnet in the 50s on TV from Dragnet on radio. So reboots go back to the uh, uh, you know comics uh, age and all the rest of it. So the idea is nothing new, but there's just so much more space now to put these in. I hate to cut you off, but i got to go watch... To reboot. This stuff's been around for a long time. i got to go watch Jersey Shore remake, so i got to get out of here, Bob. Sorry. Talk <laughs> Talk to you next week. Okay? <laughs> Thank you very much. Bob Thompson joins us every Monday. He's the founding director of the Blyer Center for TV and Popular Culture and a trustee professor of TV and Popular Culture at the Newhouse School of Public Communications at Syracuse University. Up next, it's time for All Revved Up with kind of a surprising statement by the Pope. Stay tuned for that and more at 89.7 WGBH, Boston Public Radio.
He's Jim Browdy. And she's Marjorie Egan. And this is 89.7 WGBH, WGBH HD1, Boston. Online at WGBHnews.org. Boston's local NPR. Welcome back to Boston Public Radio. Jim Browdy and Marjorie Egan here with us in Studio 3 to take on the moral dilemmas of the day is Reverend Emmett Price. He is a professor of worship, church, and culture and founding executive director of the Institute for the Study of the Black Christian Experience at Gordon-Conwell Theological Seminary. Uh, Irene is off today, and when you walked in the studio, Marjorie, of course, said to you, well, the only good news, even though you miss Irene, is you'll be able to talk, at which point Marjorie <laughs> said, it's sort of like when Jim is out, I am able to talk. That's right. You know, I, I can complete a sentence. I don't make so many mistakes. I don't trip over my words so much, so I'm not worried about getting interrupted. But anyway, that's okay. But we okay. miss Irene. Yeah, we that's okay. We do so miss we Irene. miss my dear friend and my sparring partner. Really yes, miss and we wish her the best. Uh, but meanwhile, um, Emmett Price, let's talk about uh, Liberty University. This is the one that's run, now run by Jerry Falwell, Jr., the son of the famed uh, Jerry Falwell, who, remember him with Tinky Winky, thought Tinky Winky was with the Purple Pocketbook, was was gay, and it was causing bad things to happen. Anyway, uh, we talk a lot about the schism in evangelicals, and there is a group of progressive evangelical Christians at the school, a student, uh, who wanted to write a piece for the student newspaper uh, criticizing what she called toxic evangelicalism. And what yeah. happened? Well, this this past weekend there was a uh, what was called a red letter revival, and this is a group of uh, progressive evangelical Christians who wanted to pray against toxic evangelicalism. And so uh, Shane Claiborne is one of the co-founders of this, and a number of folks sojourned down to Lynchburg. Um, our dear friend William Barber was down there. Um, Jonathan Martin, another evangelical pastor, was down there. And so they sojourned to go pray for the toxicity and even to pray for Jerry Falwell Jr. and pray for Liberty University. And the student newspaper wanted to write about this event, and they were forbade to write about anything of this. The, the, the commentary was that the institution is a private institution. They own the newspaper, and thus they get to approve or disapprove what the news uh, the editors write. You know, like when this young woman, it was a woman, right, who wanted to write yep. a piece. That's correct, yeah. She knew that uh, she assumed that Falwell would want to respond to what was said, so she sent him an email. And here's what the screenshot of the email said, according to the Religion News Service. No, let's not run any articles about the event. That's all these folks are here for publicity, best to ignore them. She wrote back again and saying, well, the national media is going to cover this. Yeah. It's a big deal, and to which he did not uh, respond at well, all. I well, think that's they, perfect. It so symbolizes. I think it's perfect. It, I mean, Falwell not only tried to ignore it, but a number of people, uh, Shane Claiborne, one of them, actually wrote to Falwell personally and said, we would love to invite you to come pray with us at the end to close it out. Oh, I miss we're in part. your area. We're in your town. Some of your students are here. And Falwell's response came from the Liberty University Police Department that said, <laughs> if you step on our campus, not only will you potentially have up to one year in jail, but a $2,500 fine. Oh, my gosh. Well, you know, I find this very encouraging being a... a uh, Which part? Well, that uh, I wrote about this last week for, for, for The Globe about uh, many 
uh, progressive evangelicals and uh, black evangelicals. Matter of fact, Jim Wallace does that yeah, Sojourners absolutely. magazine. Yeah. He and the, the guy, the first, I think he's the first African American bishop of the Episcopal Church, whose name escapes me. I should remember it, but I don't. Anyway, he was among a group of about twenty people that had issued this docu- document, basically saying that the Trump evangelicals can't really call themselves Christians because they're opposed to things about the poor and about migration and all this kind of stuff. So you're seeing the schism get more play. And the schism has always been there. The the challenge is is that that Trump is uh, uh, basically dominating the media coverage, and his evangelical advisory board are getting that play. And so, for instance, this Red Letter Revival was really about Jesus and justice, and they talked all about and prayed all about the environment, the poor, and the immigrants. And that was like the main piece. And there have been these groups of individuals across the country and really across the world over the same time. So so as much as, you know, the Trump evangelicals, as Irene would call them, have been dominating the airplay, there are so many other evangelicals who are doing the great work, who are praying the great prayers and doing the phenomenal works, as it were, um, who are just under the radar, who are not being seen or heard or known about. Yeah. And you're also hearing about some of the younger uh, evangelicals who are saying, well, wait a minute, I'm not sure I I feel the same way about gay rights as my my." you know, 50 or 55 or 60-year-old father or right. grandfather that was in the past that was running this church for a long time. You're seeing yeah. break-ups among them. It's, well, you're, it's, you're seeing a huge thing because, again, in the evangelical movement, if we're, in, if we're honest about it, two generations ago, uh, you probably wouldn't have any African-Americans like myself, right? Because you had the slavery system and, and many of the evangelical forefathers were slave owners. And so as you look at that kind of hermeneutic at that time, it was seen that black people were not necessarily necessarily invited into the movement, and then eventually women were not invited to the movement. So there's been a shifting tide over, over the course of time where you see the millennials now and, and the next the Gen Xers are, are, are like, hey, you know, let's just get this thing right now. Yeah. You know, to use your expression, Emmett Price, African-Americans like myself, you're a California kid, as we've I discussed am. a number of times. Amy Alexander wrote this piece in the New York Times, the title of which is Stefan Clark, about whom we've spoken to you and Irene, on the Golden State's shameful secret and the shameful secret in a sentence is her contention is this is far from aberrational Mm -hmm. describe one what she has to say and two what your reaction particularly as a california guy is to it well she's she's mentioning historically what's going on in california that's always seen as kind of a progressive state um, but has had some really horrible issues with jurisprudence going back to rodney king Mm -hmm. going back to oscar grant um, going back to a number of individuals, you know, the, the most recent, it, actually the most recent is not Stefan Clark. I got a, a, a phone call from a dear friend this past weekend that there was a, a, a young person who was shot in Barstow uh, on Friday or Saturday night over the weekend that hasn't necessarily made it to uh, the, the national news yet. But this this huge tra- travesty that's going on. And the fact is that that there's so much implicit bias within the policing system there in California and so much prejudice and, 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 and just classism and all that kind of stuff that is absolutely horrific. So it's not aberrational. This is nothing new. This is systemic, and we have to do something about it. It was uh, Oscar Grant was Fruitvale Station, yeah, right? right? Yeah, that's right. Yeah. That's right. And I did not realize that uh, African Americans account for only about 6.5% of California's I. population. Small population. I did not know that. I, you know, I was saying, I mean, you come from California. I briefly spent some time in California in the mid-'70s and the late-1980s, and I I noticed there was terrible prejudice against Chicanos. Oh yes, um, which is a whole other thing going on uh, 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 out there. Um, but I thought, 
it was worse. But I don't know, and you know, I thought it was as bad against Chicanos as it was against African Americans here. But I don't know if that's true or not true. I mean, it's it's a combination and a conflation of all of that. I mean, you you have a lot of Mexicans, um, Chicanos. Um, you have a lot of uh, Polynesians. Um, you know, Samoans, and then you have a lot of blacks, African-Americans. You still have a population of indigenous who have been there for many, many uh, you know, years and generations. And it just seems that this, this swath of, of, of the confluence, I mean, it's just a horrible problem. I was just back in the Bay Area uh, to, to uh, the Thursday and Friday before Easter. And when I got off the plane at San Francisco uh, International Airport and drove over to Oakland, you can just feel the thickness in the air. I mean, it's just, you know, the Stephon Clark uh, protesters were still around. People were wearing T-shirts and you can just still feel it. And it was that, that kind of anxiety that, that, that reminded me why I left California in the very, you know, very, you know, and it was just horrible. And you just knew that things were kind of at that tipping point of either pushing forward or moving back. It was just really bad. Well, you know, we've talked about this before, and it was obviously a long time ago. It was in the uh, mid-'90s. Well, I guess when was the O.J. Simpson trial? 1994, something like that? Anyway, the, 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 the point is that many people, I certainly didn't know, about this long history of police brutality mm-hmm. in Los Angeles, where it was like every black person you talked to had a story about their yeah. brother or their yeah. brother-in-law, or their father or themselves. Those yeah. documentaries from the yeah. last couple of years we told that story pretty powerfully and and, um again i don't know if this was worse than the rest of the country it seemed that way to me but i could be wrong i would again i'm biased because i was there um but i do know historically like swat teams come out of la uh police department uh the battering ram come out of los angeles police department and some of those tactical devices and some of those tactical strategic weapons you know situations you know there was a television show uh you know back in i think the 60s it would have called swat right where we would always watch these guys sojourn out of this or or move out of this big you know kind of ups bus and kind of take down these folks and that was tv and you remember in the 80s and 90s cops was a show that's right that's right so you know all of these kind of entertainment values you know that kind of based on that but yeah lapd was horrible i mean we used to always joke in the streets that there were two types of gangs the street gangs and the lapd and you weren't safe with either one of them you, know, you mentioned a second ago you were in Oakland. I, Saturday night I was watching Van Jones interview Ryan Coogler, who most people think was born with Black Panther. Yeah, Obviously, yeah. did Fruitvale Station, which we were talking about a minute ago, about the horrible killing of this Oscar, uh, Oscar Grant mm-hmm. on the, I think it was on the Bay Area That's Rapid right. Transit mm-hmm. uh, Station. He said in the middle of that interview, uh, Van Jones said, Why is Oakland so important to you? And appears in all the movies, like the beginning and end of Black Panther, et cetera. And he says, I'm from there. And I think just to save embarrassment, because obviously that was the answer, well, is there something more to it? And Kugler almost came up. But you, you could the feeling I had is I got to come up with something else so so Van Jones isn't embarrassed. And he said it's the, the most diverse major city in America. Is it the most diverse major Do you know? I don't know. I thought. And this is just my own speculation, because the screenwriter, uh, Joe Robert Cole, was a classmate of mine at Cal Berkeley. Really? And we we started at Berkeley in 92. And that first scene of uh, Black Panther takes you to Oakland, 1992. And I thought that that was a reference. So, so I, I had never heard that Oakland was the largest uh, uh, diverse city in the nation. Yeah, when you, I don't know how old Kugler is. I, I don't think I've ever seen him before. I've read interviews. He is so young. He is. And when you see somebody, <laughs> how young is he? Like, I, what is he? He looks like he's thirty. He must be a little bit old. I'm assuming. But when you see what this guy has accomplished in this period of time, most recent, how old is he, Amanda? 
31. Well, he is. Yeah, there he is. Young. 31. He it's is. just, it is stunning. So we're talking to Emmett Price. Henri Monroe uh, is not here today. We talked about the schism in the evangelicals. There has long been a big schism among Catholics, oh, yes. too. So the this Pope... This is Marjorie's favorite story of the week. Well, it is because... It's only Monday, but... <laughs> it, it, it is because the Pope said something uh, today that's going to send shutters through the side of the Catholic church that nothing matters except abortion. He sort of called people to task on that. Not only did he call them out, uh, Marjorie, not only did he say something, but it was documented at a 103-page document called an apostolic exhortation. I'd love to kind of do one of those. And and so he says that migration and poverty are just as important as abortion. And I think he puts it very plain and center that we need to take care of people. And he argues this within the realm of, of, of seeking holiness. So for all of us who are pursuing this idea of holiness, then we need to be mindful, as mindful, he suggests, as those who are impoverished and those who are migrants, uh, as mindful as we are of those who, uh, you know, about abortion and anti-abortion. Yeah, I, I thought this was really, um, uh, really something. The quote from so from this is, our defense of the innocent unborn, for example, needs to be clear, firm, and passionate. Equally sacred, however, are the lives of the poor, those already born, the destitute, and the abandoned. And he, as you say, he, he really goes on to say, you know, he wants people to uh, engage with the world and worry less about their demonstrations of faith and piety. Mm-hmm. And I thought that was incredible, too. He and, also goes on to say that, that uh, many people in the church, some Catholics, see uh, caring for the poor as a, quote, secondary second, issue. Yeah. yeah. So he really... He he does he goes the whole nine yards oh, the, on this the, thing. The feathers are ruffled. The feathers are ruffled. Well, the so what, feathers does that, are what does that mean ruffled. to your favorite people, Catholics in Congress? Do you think? Do you think it matters in the well, slightest? I, I, I think that it will be like a lot of things this Pope have said that people that are more conservative don't like. They will just say he's you know he's too far out there. He's too or aggressive. I'm helping the poor by screwing the poor. Essentially, <laughs> no, I mean that is I mean it's sort of a Ryan esque approach to. Poor oh yeah, people, well, Paul is Ryan is, is yeah. He's a Catholic. He sends his kids to Catholic school. I always wonder what his relationship is with the nuns at that school. With some of the things that he does, because the nuns <laughs> tend to be really walking the walk and talking the talk at the same time. But I think it's very interesting. When I used to work for Crux, which was the Globe's short-lived Catholicism website, you know, Catholicism doesn't doesn't uh, doesn't pay many bills. We I guess we didn't have ads. We went out. Marjorie of business was very named quickly. religious uh, opinion writer of the That's year right. in America. I know. When you were at Crux. I got to go down to get a little award. It was That's very exciting. That's a huge deal. By Thank the way, you. I know you don't major accomplishment. But anyway, it's a big deal. anyway, the point I was trying to make is that I would be stunned because I am a progressive and I subscribe to the uh, uh, pro-choice Catholic magazine that you get every month that was started by Francis Kneeling a million years ago. Anyway, um, I was stunned by the vitriol you would get from people who, who are doing these works of piety. You know, they... Oh, for, they would never eat meat during Lent on a Friday, you right. know, or Good Friday or anything like that. And I made the mistake of eating the pulled pork sandwich that day. I was called out <laughs> at the library. All my friends. But anyway, uh, the, the the animosity. So it's just as there too. is in the evangelicals, it's yeah. like you're either very conservative or you're uh, progressive and near the twain shall meet, I guess. Yeah, and the, and the Pope actually goes at this sideways because he also, I think earlier this month, or, uh, yeah, earlier this month, he prayed for people with economic responsibility. Yes. In essence, he prayed for people who had decision-making power over 
mass populations of people, that they would be responsible in their decision-making power, and perhaps that the the money would flow to those who need it the most. Yeah. And so in that sense, he's trying to kind of demonetize these political platforms in a sense where we look towards equity and look towards sharing the resources that we have. Those yeah. people should do, quote, everything possible to ensure that there are opportunities of dignified work. Yes. I love the yes. expression yes. of dignified work. I know. It's he writes really well. And just like at the evangelicals, when you divide the Catholics, it's white Catholics yes. that are much more conservative. Hispanic Catholics, Catholics who are people of color, are much more uh, progressive, which Absolutely. is the same thing as the black evangelicals Absolutely. and the white evangelicals. We have work to do. We have work to do. That is correct. Good to see you. Well, Emma. we miss Irene Monroe today, but she can She'll be, be back. back next week. We are sure. Emmett Price and Irene Monroe join us every week for All Revved Up. Thank you very much, Emmett. Emmett is a professor of worship, church, and culture, and founding executive director of the Institute for the Study of the Black Christian Experience at Gordon Conwell Theological Seminary. Thanks, Emmett. Coming up, we're opening the lines and asking you about a bill in New York City that would make it illegal for employers to email you on the weekend. Perhaps even make your illegal for your colleague to email you on the weekend. This is 89.7 WGBH, Boston Public Radio. Welcome back to Boston Public Radio. Jim Browdy and Marjorie Egan. So, uh, tell us if this has happened to you. Mm-hmm. Excuse the... me, excuse me. What? Before you introduce the next segment, I just want to say we just had Emmett Price in here uh, by himself because Irene had something to deal with today. She couldn't mm-hmm. be here. Okay. So this is from John and Gardner. What do you say? He says, Marjorie, I've long maintained the Rev segment should be split in two. One, Marjorie and Emmett have a civil <laughs> discourse and actually listen to one another. Second segment... Jim and Irene have a knockdown, drag out, power struggle, no holes barred for control of the microphone. I'm fine with that. <laughs> fine with that, John. That's actually John, that was a good one. Thank we'll you very much. Programming department. <laughs> so uh, it's the weekend or night, or you're lounging in front of the TV, or wearing sweatpants. Suddenly the phone lights up with a bunch of emails from your boss. In an instant, it's like you're transported back to your office. You might as well be wearing a button down and listening to Bob from accounting complain about the office fridge. Because it feels exactly like you're at work. Well, in New York City, this soon could be against the law. Their city council in New York is considering a bill that would make it illegal, illegal for businesses to contact employees after hours. France, by the way, Marjorie, I know you're going to ridicule this idea, is already way ahead of them on this. Mm-hmm. A similar, a stop with you, huh? A similar law took effect there at the beginning of 2017. If you think this is a minor issue, which Marjorie obviously does, consider these numbers. A study conducted, I think it was 2016, found that the average worker spent 4.1 hours a day on email or other messages related to work. That adds up to about 20 hours a week, 1,000 hours a year, and almost 80% of people check their work email while they're on vacation. So we're opening up the lines asking you, is this you? Do you find yourself feeling pressure to respond to work emails on the weekend or at night? If so... Would you not like to see a, and this is what it's called, a right to disconnect law right here in Massachusetts or New Hampshire or Rhode Island? And I, for one, Marjorie, since you asked, yeah. would like to see exactly such a law here. Now, we should point this out that this is coming from the man who emails the entire staff constantly all weekend long. Well, if it were illegal, then I wouldn't, probably wouldn't do it. <laughs> By the way, it is not illegal to do it. It is illegal to force people 
to respond right. to it if you are a but boss. The, but it's a ridiculous law it's not because ridiculous. what are you going? Well, I, I, I'm for the concept, but what are you going to mm. do? Turn your boss fine. in? Yeah, you're going to say my boss emailed me over the weekend. I wanted to pay a two hundred and fifty dollar fine. That's going that's going to go over well. I, I thought think. that through. Yeah. And if you ha- if you don't respond to your email, you won't be seen as the suck up employee that the boss really wants. It's going to respond right away on a Saturday night at nine either. o'clock or seven o'clock on a Sunday morning. I mean, I always know that on a Sunday, and I I usually do it because I know it probably oh, annoys God. you. I don't check my emails till like nine o'clock oh, on a Sunday doesn't night. Upset me at all. <laughs> And there's Doesn't like upset me because God forbid we should be prepared on Monday. Seven little missives from Jim that started First of all, they're not little five thirty in the morning. <laughs> because I care about our listeners, Marjorie. That's the only major difference between the two of us. But you know, I do think that it's, it's unbelievable. I, I'm always amazed. There are certain people that must check their email constantly because some people you'll send an email to, and a minute later they get back to you. How can you get anything done Disgusting. if you're checking your email every every can I two tell seconds? You, not only do I support this law, I would go one step further. Yep. As I explained to you, at least the the bill that's filed in New York City, it's not illegal to send an email to your employees. Uh, it's illegal to force them to respond. The problem, as you said a minute ago, if you're an employee and your boss sends you an email, it's pretty. The pressure is pretty heavy, regardless yes, of no the law. Kidding. So you know what the law should be? What you can't do it. You just can't do it. If you need additional people to get the job done, or if it's an emergency, maybe there can be an emergency exception or something, allow people to have a little work-life balance, which does not exist, which is why we have the stress level we have, which is why we're the fattest nation on earth, which is why there's so many heart attacks and strokes and that sort of thing. This is long overdue. I am so on board with this, I cannot tell you. Well, you know, don't you remember, uh, you probably never liked this because you're rather neurotic about these things. Thank you, I appreciate it. But you used to be, when you got home, you were home. Home. That was it. Home. You know, there, there was no email. Mm-hmm. There were no cell phones. Mm-hmm. They would have to actually call exactly. you on the telephone. That's the what I'm trying to recreate. Thing was you would go on vacation. This is particularly difficult for me being in the newspaper business because mm. it would always seem that my vacation coincided with some major tragedy that would happen. You had to come back and cover it. And I had to come back and, mm-hmm. and, and cover it. That's right. They would actually call me because I used to be at my mother's house and so they know where I was. But, you know... It ruins everything if you have to live like so this. So why are you against me on this? It, exactly. It because ruins I don't everything. Think, because I, I think that this is not going to work. You don't respond to my emails anyway, so why should well, it be law? you are not my boss. I'm not your boss. I know you wish I've actually you were spoken to some superiors boss. about whether there should be an adjustment to <laughs> but that. But so far, you are not my boss. Uh, sadly, And I'm so not. I don't have to worry about not responding to your, to your emails emails right away. Other people respond to your I'm emails, nobody's right? boss, by the way. We're all coworkers here, okay, as you we're well all know. Co-workers. I, like it. I know you like to make well, it. Well, I think getting an email from you might be intimidating to some people, I don't Jim. do that except to you, Marjorie. <laughs> <laughs> Figure that one out. 877 Would you support a right to disconnect law? And by the way, again, people think it's ridiculous. Like Marjorie, it's about, well, I don't know if it's about to happen. It's being considered in New York City. It has already been in place in France for a year or two years or something like this. This is why people die young. Because you never, you're, you're on a tether that's right. You can't get away. You can't you get away. You have to be untethered. And you know, even when you go on vacation now out of the country, I mean, everybody can text you still and, and email you. It's absolutely horrible. Stephen says he doesn't so much object to the fact that his boss sends him mm-hmm. weekend emails, but rather the fact that they're mostly YouTube cast videos. <laughs> <laughs> Can you imagine that? That would be terrible. Eight seven seven three zero one eighty nine seventy. Russell from Wakefield. What do you think? Hi, Russell. Hi. How are you? Excellent. Uh, Whoops. Oh, you're in a bad cell. Oh, Russell. We'll put you on hold for a second. We'll yeah, get back to you in a we, second. We you were in a great you. place when you started, but then you kind of faded. Go ahead. Jacob in the car. What do you think, Jacob? Hi, Jacob. 
Um, hi. I think it would be uh, a little bit tough, to, depending on certain um, uh, occupations. Specifically for me, I work in the mental health field. Yeah. So um, in terms of care coordination, uh, you know, I always, my boss tells me not to uh, do it all the time, but I tend to sometimes um, give the uh, families uh, a little bit of reassurance that they can contact me even oh, on the good. weekends just in case because I like to know uh, maybe certain situations that happen that might be, you know, on Monday I might be trying to catch up to it where I, I on the weekend I would at least be aware of it. Maybe I wouldn't necessarily follow up with it, um, but I would definitely be aware and it would prepare me a little bit more for Monday. But it doesn't mean that I would want them to be, you know, many, you know, every but Hours, Jacob, you know, Jacob, <laughs> you know yeah. I mean, you are a good person, obviously, but how, how can you enjoy your time off if you're always on call? But can I, before Jacob answers, the way the, the bill is structured in New yep. York City, if Jacob got an email and he, deter- he determined, not his boss, that it was an appropriate one to respond to, he is free to right, do but that. This but if he's being boss, harassed by his these boss, are, the, I, I, but that's, that's, correct me if I'm wrong, Jacob. These thing. are clients who have mental yeah, health issues, right? Yeah, because he's a nice right? guy. He wants to be yeah, helpful. Yeah, yeah so, so you're being a nice so, guy, but you can't enjoy going to the movies or going out for, you know. No, uh, no, no. That would be yeah. That would be the the, the caveat because you know if there was a situation that was it would needed some uh, I wouldn't say necessarily pressing time but it would definitely increase my anxiety about the situation you know what I'm saying yeah. so if I was at the movie and it was an important uh, email yeah that would kind of throw up the the enjoyment of the movies um but if I do it to your point Jim if I do feel like I don't need to answer an email from my boss about scheduling you know I, I don't think I would be so pressed to give her a response back you know and I love her to death but I don't think I would be <laughs> Well, exactly. And by the way, if bosses knew that that the law was different, they also might not be sending so many absurd emails at so many absurd times. Jacob, thanks for a great call. The vast majority of those contacts could wait till normal work hours, could they not? Or they do because they're neurotic bosses uh, emailing neurotic and scared employees. You know what I think is that you see physicians use all the time. They have they have uh, pe- someone on call mm. for the weekend, so you're only on call once every four weeks or once every six weeks, whoever it works out like that. So you don't have to be on call. All my physicians are on call. That's why it's. <laughs> A whole swath yeah. of them. I mean, that's. T- I remember when I when, when I was young, it, 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 we were. I was in the Standard Times in the bed for the newspaper down there. We were all out, you know, being twenty something. We were all out partying, and there was sure. a bad fire. And of course, they called the people, and we had had several cocktails. We all had to get in a taxi. Wow. Go to the go to the fire because we didn't think we should be driving Amazing in that situation. Story. Yeah, so you, know, you have a bunch of reporters who've been at the bar for three hours covering the fire. It was a very bad. Situation. How was that different from any other time? You covered <laughs> it was the story. not good. It was not good. Trying to put together the story you know, together was not good. On a good. serious note, here I know you're trying to ridicule me, which is generally what you do on issues. It like is this. my favorite thing in the world. This it is it is obscene that. I, by the way, there's some exceptions. Obviously, if you're in the you know while Jacob was talking about patience, where he's a kind guy. Obviously, if you do that sort of thing for a living, you may have to respond to your boss from time to time. But would you not agree the vast majority of workplaces and jobs, if the employee did not respond to an email at 9 o'clock at night, but rather waited until the next morning at 8 or 9 o'clock, the world would not end? 
I, and people's lives would be so much better and healthier. I think there's something called, it used to be called FaceTime, like how much time you could spend in the office mm-hmm. so your boss could see that you're working mm-hmm. from 8 in the morning until 8 at night. I think the same thing is now email time, that if you I agree. respond to the email instantaneously, then in your boss's mind, you are the more devoted go-getter, and you should be the person that should be in line for promotions or pay raises or whatever, as opposed to the person that waits overnight because they're they're just not that ambitious. Jim. I'm trying to be transparent here. I do admit that I did go to our boss today and said that I did email you nine times over the weekend and didn't get a response to last night. I felt <laughs> I had you. to. It was purely out of loyalty to the GBH newsroom. It had nothing you, to Jim. do with you. Yeah, it turned me right in. He said action will be taken. <laughs> Appropriate action. Appropriate will action. Will be taken. I'm looking forward to it. Now, if there was Run- a law, you'd be pretty, well, I'm not your boss, but I mean, you know what I mean. If there mm-hmm. was a law, you wouldn't have to worry about this. You'd be able to be, you'd be shielded by the... <laughs> The law. You'd be insulated by the law. But by the way, there are a lot of fairly you know what, powerless. You know what else you do? You'll call me three times, and I'll be on the phone, so I can't take the call. Yeah. And then I think it's really important that so you call three Obviously, times. I wouldn't call you. And and then you call a fourth time. You say uh, eight fifteen in the morning. Right. Right. Bang. You know, it's like it's like you you have this ten second message. There? Well, you just have these ridiculous well, emergency may, situations. Marjorie, I wouldn't bring this up if I were you. If you ever got anybody out there ever gotten a voicemail from Marjorie? If you, I don't if leave you, you voicemails me, I'm, anymore. I'm I do not right leave. Now. When was the last time I left you a voicemail? Uh, I would say it was in 2016. I would say if you ever got a voicemail yeah. from Marjorie ever, you're probably still listening to it. <laughs> and the problem is beyond the fact that they are endless, and I do mean endless, uh-huh. is you have to listen to the end because yeah. you don't know if she's finally going to say something of value yeah. at okay. the end of the thing. Okay. okay. All right. <laughs> All right. Let's get back to the calls here. No, I mean you're the, you brought it up, Marjorie. I didn't bring it up. What did I do? I agreed to drive someone to the holiday party and didn't have their number? What's yeah, remember about? Molly? You were going to drive them to the holiday party? and you remember the, It's a little hard when you can't contact them. Oh, yeah, Marjorie offered right. to drive them. Of course, didn't know where the number was. Didn't even know who she was. She's worked with us for three years. She had no idea. Who is that woman okay. sits in the control room, Marjorie said? Russell from Wakefield. What do you think, Russell? Oh, are you the gentleman that had the bad connection before? I Hi, think so. Russell. I Welcome had, back. I had, I had the bad connection. I'm, I'm like parked in front of some stranger's house because it's a good signal. Oh, great. Good, great. Uh, uh, you can hear me well this time? Yes. Excellent. All right. I won't say where I work, but part of my responsibilities include like social media Ooh. and like some branding assets. Mm. Um, but I'm not the lead person on that. And at the end of the day, when I want to go home, I want to go home. Um, and I've had on multiple situations, like an email at like 11 o'clock at night when I have to be in at 5:30 AM the next morning ridiculous. to like get something done right away. And it's my major gripe with that is also the idea that my boss doesn't have to pay me for something. I'm doing. Oh, exactly. It's like sadistic, and isn't it? Russell? I, it's it's not enough. Like I don't I don't make salary. I make hourly. I when I go home, I wanna I wanna shut that part off because you know I need to recuperate and prepare for the next day. So you so would you I would welcome all, a law like this right to disconnect law that I'm advocating here? Is that not correct? You know I didn't know there was one in France. I'm like I'm about to get a passport. <laughs> I am. Yeah, that, that's Russell. Thanks. That's for a the great. Call. That's a great call. Listen to this from Brian. He say? says, "Does the same rule apply to the boss? If I send five emails, can I expect all the questions to my boss? Can I expect all the questions to be answered over the weekend? Like he would expect me to supply answers immediately? The solution each weekend 
email comes with a PayPal payment of 15 bucks and goes up $5 as you send more emails. Oh, so the first one is 15 actually. then 20 then 25 then 30 And I would suspect that the, uh, the problem uh, might quickly be a thing of By the past. By the way, the, you were totally on my side here. You just don't understand how, what the mechanics of this thing would be. But you support the concept that you should be I do support free the concept. from interference in I just in don't think it's going to work if you have to go in and and you know report your boss. Well, you know what? I've Actually, an amendment that I would file if the bill was filed mm-hmm. here, I'd say on the second offense, the boss should be jailed. And that way, <laughs> that, that way first offense, $250 fine, like in New York City. Let's take we right. one more call. Second offense, time. three to five. Not three to five. That's ridiculous. Maybe six months. <laughs> No more than that. Okay, Daniel let's in the go car, to Daniel. very quickly, Hi, your Daniel. last or something. Hi, hello there. Hey, uh, I actually have had bosses that have told me uh, while I was on vacation, I came back and they said, "Well, I guess it was your, you know, it was your choice not to answer, but you really should have answered this email." That is horrific. It really, right? It was really confusing. Like, you know, aren't I supposed to be having you know time away from work, and you're bothering me this entire week? And they just don't look at it that way. No, I I think that is really horrible that people can't go on vacation. I have so many friends that are in like consulting kind of jobs. They never get to go away. They never get to go. Well, they get to go away, and then they're back two days later. Then they try to go back also, to their vacation. The story and that Daniel tells: you have anxiety the whole vacation, right, Daniel? Because you know you're going to come home, or come back to a boss who's going to be saying those kind of things, right? Exactly. I feel like you're coming back to a boss who's going to be mad that you just took vacation. And yeah. you know, it, a well-rested employee is a well is a well-worked employee. Well, if I were you, I'd just plant something in his desk and call the cops. That's what I do, and <laughs> pay him back in kind. Daniel, okay. thank you. And by the way, let me just say, yes, Jim. If you if the goal of a boss is mm-hmm. not only run a work, good workplace, but have employees feel good about him or her, this is something you don't do. You allow people when they leave to leave. Yep. End of discussion. Bonnie says we, we have to go, we, so we can't take the call, but they should include text messages. Oh, they should. It's any message. I think it's any message. absolutely right, because text messages, you know, they get you even faster. Faster. With those. Horrible. It's outrageous, Jim. It's just unbelievable. Coming up, poet Richard Blanco is here for another edition of The Village Voice. Stay tuned to that on 89.7 WGBH, Boston Public Radio. Jim Browdy and Marjorie Gant. Here with us in Studio 3, not on the phone, not on an ISDN, <laughs> in the flesh, for another edition of Village Voices, Richard Blanco. Richard's the fifth presidential inaugural poet in U.S. history. As you know, he joins us regularly using poetry to understand the news of the day. Today it's something a little different. We're marking National Poetry Month with what I guess we would both call the ultimate master class. Richard <laughs> Blanco's latest uh, project is the Fine Press book, Boundaries. It's a collaboration with photographer Jacob Hessler. Richard, it's great, great, great to see you. Great to be here in the cold flesh, I, I might mention, just <laughs> exactly. off the plane from Miami. So. I know. You did, really? It was really? like 80 degrees when you left. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, yeah. And beautiful. <laughs> yeah. And here we 
we are in the middle of April. I really am going to say April, this. You know April what I'm Fools. That's yeah, what April they Fools. Say. He's going day after day after day. <laughs> but so we're going to let you be kind of the professor here because this is uh, uh, Poetry Month, and we're going to have a uh, master class in poetry. So take it away, Professor Blanco. Well, I, I appreciate the vote of, vote of confidence with the master class. <laughs> but, um, yeah, I just wanted to sort of share some adages, some, some of my favorite quotes uh, about poetry, what poetry is, what poetry isn't, uh, things that guide my own writing and my own, my own sort of aesthetic and, and things I keep on coming back to as a way for, a, to, for National Poetry Month for us to sort of maybe be a little bit, uh, a little bit uh, well, we have metrophobia, which is the actual fear of poetry. It's a known. Is <laughs> that the term? It's a recognized fear really? of poetry. So I hope after today people will turn into metromaniacs. <laughs> okay. Why metrophobia? Oh, I, I, question, I questioned the same thing. I yeah. thought it was from cities. It comes from meter. From the word meters, meter. yeah, really, <laughs> yeah. So, so just to combat that a little bit, and before I do that, I just wanted to give a shout out also to uh, all those t- uh, educators, teachers that might be a little bit panicking. National Poetry Month, what to teach, what to bring to the kids, um, to check out poets.org, uh, which is the website of the National um, <clears throat> of the Academy of American Poets, and I serve as their education ambassador, and we always try to do work with educators. So that's part of what what today is about as well. Yeah. It's a great website. So I'll begin. Just jump right in, right? Yes, jump right in. (laughs) So one of my favorite quotes um, is by a poet, a Salvadoranian poet called um, uh, Roque Dalton. Um, And I'm not going to give you the quote. It's in the poem. uh, But it it just sort of connects for me uh, what I feel poetry can be to all of us. Um, When I, uh, as presidential inaugural poet for the last five years, I've been crisscrossing the country reading at such unlikely venues as the FDIC, the USDA, which loved all my pork poems, um, (laughs) all my food poems. um, and Federal Deposit Insurance Corporation? FDIC law firms, um, because that inauguration opens the door to to poetry in in these unlikely... It's for Barack Obama, for those who don't yeah. So when you go into the FDIC, are you in a podium in a big auditorium, or are these small groups that you can be uh, up close and personal? Huge with auditorium, because a lot of these a lot of these places have programs for speakers. But the last thing they would ever invite was a poet, because they all suffer from metrophobia, but as, exactly. as many of us as I have. Uh, but because the inauguration is such a public moment, they suddenly open the doors. So, and and every single instance um, from many people in those auditoriums in those scenes is the first time they've ever seen a living poet. <laughs> Read, uh, heard, uh, been read a, a contemporary poem, or or been read to a contemporary poem, and without fail, I, what I've witnessed is it's always. Wow, I didn't know poetry could be like that. I didn't know poetry, and I I would like to take all the credit that it's that it's my work. But actually, like me, there's many poets writing that are much better than I write, even and much more and just as accessible. So, so this this is kind of a a, a thing. Uh, this poem, and I, I think I think the quote will pop out at you. But um, it's kind of what I, it's kind of my guiding, uh, my guiding light. It's the kind of poetry I want to write, uh, the kind of, the way I want my poems to connect. Like you, like you, I love, love, life, the sweet smell of things, the sky blue landscape of January days. And my blood boils up and I laugh through eyes that have known the buds of tears. I believe the world is beautiful and that poetry, like bread, is for everyone. And that my veins don't end in me, 
but in the unanimous blood of those who struggle for life, love, little things, landscape, and bread, the poetry of everyone. Well, we know what that line is, and that <laughs> right. poetry like bread is for everyone, yeah. right? And, it, and I, love the, great. I love the metaphor because it's, it's not only it's the, the idea of, of, of sustenance, right? And, but also the idea that bread is just this ordinary thing that we have every day. And that it can be, it can be that in our lives, right? Well, you know, I don't know if you said this or if somebody else I heard say this, but the argument between and among poets about the word accessibility, right? <laughs> some people get very offended by. We did discuss this, that. In Richard, yeah, we did. Yeah, it's a great so, topic. So, tell us why people get offended. Well, I, I think. Um, I, we get offended on both ends, right? So um, often uh, uh, being accessible means that it's simple. And, and it's, to me, that's actually not quite – it's actually – they're not antonyms um, um, or synonyms, right? Uh, that something can be very accessible and yet very complex. Um, and I think in my personal view, uh, in my aesthetic and the way I see poetry, I think it's the poet's – what's difficult is to distill some of these complex issues uh, of life to to – to make them accessible in ways that I mean that's to me is the work of the poet, but um, I, I think there's there's a whole other vein of poetry uh, or poets and there's or I should say there's a whole spectrum between that write more uh, abstract work uh, more uh, academic work and but I, as I always say look it's a chorus you know and and we, we need every 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 song every voice in the chorus and but for those of us that come to poetry uh, it's often just finding that one voice that that you connect to or that two or three voices that you connect to because there is also this myth of poetry that you know it's poetry with a big P capital P and that it's one thing and it's really like music I mean if you like this kind of music it doesn't necessarily mean that you have to love every single music if you happen to read a novel that you don't like do we say oh I hate novels but with poetry with our metrophobia that we, yeah. we tend to just shut it out See, but you know my bias is that what? inaccessible poets are consciously I know that you're going to bristle at this Richard <laughs> are consciously trying to make it inaccessible the, is yeah. that a ridiculous? No, I I tend to think that sometimes. Oh, I mean, good. I see sometimes work that is really difficult, but I can. See, but you can always recognize the genius. Jory Graham for me is someone like that, right? The, it's just because you can tell that really is coming, you know, right from the very core of how she sees the world through poetry. But yeah, then there's other some other poetry, especially sometimes in in you know graduate students. I'm like, you're just being complicated <laughs> for the sake of being complicated. By the way, I just want you. You're, you're leading us through this class. I just went to the poets.org website. Not only is there a lot of great stuff here for teachers, whatever. There's also a link that's a, a, a you can click on poetry near you. You type in your zip code and the number of miles from you that you're willing to travel, and it lists all these poetry events. And National Poetry Month, it's great. Yeah, they it's have really am- amazing resources, and and that brings to mind. I always say, America is actually is an embarrassment of riches of how many poets and the kinds of poets and the the range of voices that we. I we say we we, we all live within twenty miles of a poet in America, <laughs> and you wouldn't think that we did, yeah. right? And actually, good and well and accomplished poets. And so, well, you know, especially what, in Boston, obviously. <laughs> one of the things I I thought this is analogous to is the art, argument about abstract art. You know that some of us, myself included, go to the ICA. Uh, well, actually, this week they got the Brown Sisters down in the ICA. That's pretty accessible. We talked about that last week. But, but you see a lot of art and you don't understand it, and you feel like you have to have taken art, you know, not art one hundred, but art four hundred to understand what the right. artist is doing. <laughs> and and that 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 
bothers me, but other people say, no, that's that you have to understand the history of art and one artist reacting against another period, you know, right, so you right. get the, the, the American expressionism or, impre- uh, you know, in the abstract and the Jackson right. Pollock's and the Mark Rothko and all so, that. So, yeah, there's a, there's a sort of a, a good analogy there with contemporary and, and fine arts. Um, but I, I, in the same way, I, when I see something that I just respond to viscerally, and then you read the concept and it becomes even more powerful. That's what I like. I mean, yeah. something that the art can still be very complex. And, and then you, I, <clears throat> I just did a, uh, uh, an event at a gallery in Miami where I was literally wanted to just take this. It's a, it's an installation. It's the size of a room. And I wanted to just touch it. I wanted to take it home with me without ever reading anything. But then you read the concept behind it. And it's even more powerful. Since we, since we started that conversation, I think I'm going to skip to, uh, to, um, the uh, the uh, bishop poem, okay, as a, as a way of something that, uh, as we're talking about, something that works on one level and then it has layers and layers and layers as you unpeel, and that's for me, bishop is like that. Elizabeth, Elizabeth bishop. bishop. It's you know on the surface, it it's completely accessible, and it seems oh she's just talking about a moose, or oh she's just talking about waiting in the in the in the in, in a waiting room at, at the dentist's office, and then you read it again and you read it again, and then it depends what age you're at when you come back to the poem. So and this this poem I love because it's another thing that I love what poetry does is that it examines the emotional complexities of life. Some Sometimes people think that poems are just arguing one thing, you know, so um, with, with so just with just incredible passion. They're just arguing one point of view. But actually, when I write a poem, I usually discover it's a lot more complex than what I went into the poem thinking it was. And it's, again, about distilling and the subtleties of bringing in. And this, in this particular poem, what I, what I think is genius about it is that she's sort of arguing two sides of the same of the same coin um it's about loss and of course she's acknowledging that loss is just part of the fundamental fundamental human existence right that loss is devastating that it's that it's that it's just you know it's it's just cruel and 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 sometimes unfathomable and yet you know i mean when when we pause to think like how do the how do the parents of the children of sandy hook wake up the next morning Right, that kind of loss, and yet they do, and we find a way to go on. We find a way to to to, we find a way to make make meaning out of life still to get up in the morning, and so it's one of the things that human doing human beings do best is lose, <laughs> right? We've mastered that, um, and that's what this poem sort of is 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 sort of talking about, um, and talk about. Um, simple yet this is a villanelle it's a form it's got slant rhyme all over the place it's a what what was that word a, a villanelle what does that mean i don't know it, what that it, it's a, it's a form that goes back it used to be a dance where people would spin around and it became then a song it's really really old uh, old old form mm-hmm. before you know when poetry is oral tradition and what it does it repeats two lines in a pattern through exactly well she varies one and then all the middle lines rhyme and it's written in in this almost perfect iambic pentameter and you would never guess (laughs) so um so here we go it's called one art and this is probably her masterpiece um one one of one if not the at least one of them The art of losing isn't hard to master. So many things seem filled with the intent to be lost, that their loss is no disaster. Lose something every day, except the fluster of lost door keys, the hour badly spent. 
The art of losing isn't hard to master. Then, practice losing farther, losing faster, places and names, and where it was you meant to travel. None of these will bring disaster. I lost my mother's watch, and look, my last door, next to last, of three loved houses went. The art of losing isn't hard to master. I lost two cities, lovely ones, and vaster, some realms I owned, two rivers, a continent. I miss them, but it wasn't a disaster. Even losing you, the joking voice, a gesture I love, I shan't have lied. It's evident the art of losing's not too hard to master. Though it may look like, write it like disaster. So the, Did she the, live in the, the 19, 1900s? When is she from? Uh, no, 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 she's from uh, f- this, uh, I want to say 1900s, <laughs> the 20th century, late 20th, 20th century. 1900, yeah, 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 yeah okay. mid to late. I think yeah. she died in 1975. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. So, um, when you see that repeating line, um, the art of losing it, every time, you know, she ups the ante. First it's keys, then it's then it's houses, then it's her mother's uh, personal things, and then finally love, and the love, the beloved is the greatest loss. But every time she's repeating the art of losing it in Heart to Master, it changes. It starts becoming like, if I say this long enough, it, as that many times... I, I'll convince myself, right? I will master the art of yeah. losing by just, and I, that's why I love that line, write it. It always reminds me of like, you know, in school when you're, when at least in my Catholic, <laughs> Catholic school, I shall not write in class, or I shall not talk in class 500 times. It's sort of like to make you believe or to, to change your behavior, your thinking, right? And that, that write it is like sort of like, if I just write it one more time, Maybe I will master it. So, well, you know, but, I, I love this because it's a lot about getting older, too. You know, you lose your grandparents, mm-hmm. then you lose your parents, and then you start losing contemporaries. And you hear from people who are very old, you know, that that's one of the hardest things is they've lost all their friends. Yeah, yeah. And well, then, because they sense their own mortality, obviously, yeah. too. Yeah, and it's then the, the end of friends. life is about... Being willing, willing, willing to give everything up to just let go of everything. Yeah, letting it go, right? And and yet, you know, it's it's something we do, and yet it's is we master, but it's still difficult, right? Yeah, we do it or have to do it, but at the same time, it's something that we don't we're we're never quite prepared for either, or and the things that we always have to give up, right? Or was lose she well received in her day, or did she come she, into? She, she was, but not as much as she is today. Today, why? Um. I don't know exactly why, but I think probably because I think she was also her writing was ahead of probably also because she was a woman. I I know that had a lot to do with it. Um, uh, I think also uh, she was writing a very different kind of poem. um, And I think nobody had caught up to her. And and it was actually in the late when I was going to graduate school just before then. So it was like like nine, like late 80s into the 90s. There was a sudden Elizabeth Bishop revival. I mean, she'd always had her fans and stuff, but then the academy really just, just. I mean, I was. This is we were te- we were taught this in graduate school, but uh, as far as you remember the story, it wasn't always. She also didn't live here. Um, she lived in Brazil for thirty years, uh, but she's right from Worcester. She was born and she's buried in she Worcester. From Worcester. She's buried in Worcester. Yeah, I, I have to make my pilgrimage to to her grave. <laughs> We're talk- that's the voice of Richard Blanco. He's in the studio with us. He's the fifth presidential inaugural poet. 
and we are together celebrating National Poetry Month. What's next? All right, let me, let me give you something a little more sort of personal. And one of the most famous little poems, uh, or the most famous little poem in America, <laughs> uh, uh, The Red Wheelbarrow by William Carlos Williams. And, and we know we all get this one over the head, you know. And and it's deceivingly simple. Again, it's, this seems to be keep on coming back, right? Um, this idea of how something can seemingly be so accessible and yet incredibly complex. I mean, there are whole essays written about these few lines of poem of poetry. But I'll give you this was the this was a poem I read, even though I had read it, you know, in high school when I first started writing um, as an adult. When I first started writing poetry, and I was reading this poem again, just to you know, let me go back to this now through the, with the eyes of a writer, of a poet. And I'm sitting in the family room, and I'm watching my mother. The family room's open to the kitchen, and my mother is cooking my, you know, like she's done every day of her life, as far as I can remember. And this sort of what seemed to me like the same old tomato sauce stained apron <laughs> with the same dull knives, <laughs> chopping her onions and her bell peppers, and cooking arroz con pollo or something, something wonderful, um, and the same smell of olive oil. And I was reading this poem. And I'm, I suddenly got poetry. And I think it comes back to that, that my own definition of... of, of this the, is what did it to you, this yeah. one? Yeah. I mean, I had started writing, but this is where it clicked. And, it's, and, it, and for me, it's poetry at the end is driven for me. And I think what I like to see in other poems is to find the extraordinary or to distill the extraordinary and the, the seemingly, seemingly ordinary. Mm -hmm. And that's what Williams did with this. Oh, here's just a, a wheelbarrow, but is it really? <laughs> so I'll read that poem, and then I'll read the poem that inspired, um, that was inspired by that moment. Not, not that I think we even really, really need to read it, but <laughs> the red wheelbarrow. So much depends upon a red wheelbarrow, glazed with rainwater, beside the white chickens. Do you remember when you first read it? I do. A long time ago. Yeah. I don't remember when, but I just remember it was thinking, wow, this is an easy one to remember. Right. <laughs> easy to remember and impossible to understand. That's what I remember from there's, when I was single digits. There's layers. What's interesting about this, without that first line, the level of poet, the, the poetic, it, it just is a small image, right? Yep. But with that first line, so much depends then you start realizing how many lives, I mean, this is, you know, this is obviously probably like some kind of farm scene. How many lives, how much, how our entire lives depend on the work done by this wheelbarrow, right? And it just makes echoes and echoes and echoes of, of uh, it echoes with meaning and yet deceivingly si si simple, right? But it's accessible but complex. Yeah. <laughs> so what did it cause you to do? You, you mentioned that this sort of initiated you into the, world of poetry but then did you write based upon this particular poem is that where you're going well i i think it just it was like my first aha moment right uh -huh. and this idea of ah you know it's right it, poetry is right in front of us all the time it's just a matter of finding that again that, that extraordinary within the things that you kind of are imprinting all your life right and what a poet does in a way is to sit down and go back over those those images those moments and sort of think about what you know how much how much meaning is held in them. So so that became sort of a personal adage of my sort of personal you know uh, sort of guidepost for writing. But then I wrote this poem 
which isn't about my mother cooking, but that moment of my mother cooking, I was like, so much depends upon my mother. I, I, I did a little poem. I should find it somewhere. So much depends upon my mother uh, in her stained apron, chopping onions uh, besides the steel sink or something like that. But I wrote this one, which is I couldn't do it in such few lines as as um, Williams, Williams did. But it was that moment where I found something seemingly something extraordinary in my mother in a seemingly ordinary uh, moment that I'd seen a million times but never saw it through the eyes of, a, of poetry. Mother picking produce. She scratches the oranges, then smells the peel, presses an avocado just enough to judge its ripeness, polishes the Macintoshes, searching for bruises. She selects with hands that have thickened, fingers that have swollen with history around the white gold of a wedding ring she now wears as a widow. Unlike the archived photos of young, slender digits captive around black and white orange blossoms, her spotted hands now reaching into the colors. I see all the folklore of her childhood, the fields, the fruit she once picked from the very tree, the wiry roots she pulled out of the very ground, and now, among the collapsed boxes of yucca, through crumbling pyramids of golden mangoes, she moves with the same instinct and skill. This is how she survives death and her son on these humble duties that will never change, on those habits of living which keep a life a life. She holds up red grapes to ask me what I think, and what I think is this, a new poem about her. The grapes look like dusty rubies in her hands. But what I say is this, they look sweet, Mama, very sweet. What did your mother think I of that? I love that. that. <laughs> um, you know, it's interesting, my mother... I mean, she, she has a working knowledge of English, but it, I never had a fear of writing because most of my relatives don't read in English. So That's I, very liberating, uh, oh, actually. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, yeah. I, I wasn't writing exposing things, but um, finally the third book of poetry was translated about a year ago into Spanish, and she read the whole book. And I, she sent me a text message that was just that I've saved. It's absolutely beautiful. She says, I finally understood everything that you've been doing and, oh. and you know, how much you cared about family and Cuba. And, 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 and she kind of, you know, she'll read them, but she can't get the nuances because she doesn't have that command. Of, you know, she just has, like, you know, working knowledge of English to when she's forced to speak it. Yeah. So um, she, she sent me a, And things that she didn't know that had hurt me, too, like things about my grandmother and things oh. like that. So there was a lot in the that poetry. That great piece you wrote about your grandmother. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, being nasty to you. Yeah, so she she saw me raw and also just saw... And again, I'm not... My poetry is not so much expose. I mean, and, and I'm not usually... You know, I'm usually in praise of of my mother and, and, I mean, of my family members and trying to bring out... I'm not that kind of... I'm not like... Or as my agent once said, like, you're the only poet I've ever met that doesn't hate their mother. <laughs> well, you know, Richard... Or we people only... writing about their romance, their husbands are like Sharon Olds, Right, you know? right, right. Yeah. So, we only have a couple uh, oh, minutes sure. left. So for people who want to break in but haven't, what do you say to those? Good, like good, a new kid in a class? Yeah, or... good question. So a couple of things. Um, one is I always recommend... Um, 
uh, buying an anthology of some kind. The Best American Poetry is an uh, anthology that comes out every year, and it's mm-hmm. handpicked, uh, edited. And just flip through it, and you're going to maybe hate 80% of it. But you're gonna f- want you're gonna find the twenty percent, and then commit, and then buy a book by that person. So that's a good way of getting sort of a, a, a spectrum. Um, the other thing is websites these days. I mean, the the website we just mentioned, poets.org, you can search all kinds of poems by subject matter, by theme, uh, by ho- I mean by holiday by um so that gives you and and it's free and you can just sort of and you can just click and scroll i don't like that one or like or this one's interesting i don't get it but i'm going to keep on reading it so why does it does a kid who takes one of your classes take it because they want to write poetry or because they want to read poetry i think um there's two ways of looking at it. I mean, there is creative writing classes, but this is, again, part of the issue with metrophobia in the sense that we have creative writing and then English class. Mm. And so to answer, to answer your previous question as well in this one, um, so it's like saying we have painting and creative painting or photography and creative photography, and it's really all one thing. And I think what happens is that we're taught early in school to we don't approach poetry as an art form. We approach it as this uh, as a sleuth, as something that there's only one finite meaning. We're afraid to uh, uh, connect emotionally or bring our, our own emotional experiences to the poem because this is where metrophobia happens. You read a poem, and you're asked, "What does it mean?" Well, I haven't ex- I haven't had time with them, right? I haven't, and then it's there's only one meaning, you know. And that's and there isn't. It's really about the connection between the reader. So, for those of you that have metrophobia, just remember that you're allowed to engage with the poem with what you have as well. It's that bridge and that connection that ultimately um, cures us. <laughs> it's great to are see you, Richard. That was beautiful. Uh, can we post you? The yeah, Amanda says yes, of, we are. We're getting a lot of requests to Great. post the names of the poems the website, and the poets. They'll be on wghnews.org, yeah, correct? And look for Boston Public yes. Radio. Awesome. Great uh, to see you, Thank you, you very much, so Richard. Richard is the fifth presidential inaugural poet. His latest project is the Fine Press book, Boundaries, a collaboration with photographer Jace, Jacob Hessler, and he joins us regularly for Village Voice. Thanks for listening to another edition of Boston Public Radio. Tomorrow I'll be at the Boston Public Library. Sneak preview, if you want, at 10 o'clock, we're taping with Frontline's Michael Kirk, 10.30 with medical ethicist Art Kaplan. What's on TV tonight, Jim? A couple of things. We're going to talk, John Bolton takes over today. We'll talk about that. Dick Donahue, you remember, almost died during the Cernaya of Manhunt. The sister of Sean Collier, former Watertown Police Chief Ed DeVoe. Obviously, it's going to be clear what we talk about there. And some other things, we're out of time. I'm Jim Browdy. I am Marjorie Egan. Thank you, you so much seven. for tuning in. If you're in the neighborhood, stop by the BPL tomorrow. Tomorrow.